Welcome to the show, you bitches. Welcome, everybody. I have... I have um, a big one for you. So, uh, we're going to talk about the Russia and Ukraine crisis and how it's been escalating. Now there's violence. Getting scary. World War III is a potential. Sometimes when people hear me bring up, uh, you know, World War III, they roll their eyes and they're like, hyperbolic much? No, actually, it's not hyperbolic at all. Two nuclear-armed powers in a proxy war and uh, clear alliances on both sides, Russia, China, Iran on one side, the U.S., Israel, Saudi, and some of our other allies in Europe on the other side. It's real, man. This is real. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Canadian police um, breaking up the trucker protest. There's a lot to say about that. Um... And we also got some lighter stuff for you coming, on, coming later in the show. Like, for example, the worst propaganda article I've ever seen in my life, CNN filleting themselves with an unbearable uh, propaganda video of their own. Um, a story that I'm really interested in that none of you will be really interested in, but it does, it's the intersection of professional golf and politics. Saudi Arabia is trying to basically destroy the PGA Tour and create their own league, and there's some interesting stuff happening in terms of certain players signing up with Saudi Arabia and other ones bashing those who are signing up with Saudi Arabia. So to me, that's a phenomenal story. And later on, uh, Ted Cruz hits free crack pipes. (laughs) Funny sentence. And um, religiosity is plummeting to an all-time low in the United States. So a lot of interesting stuff. Without further ado, let's get started. Um, we're going to kick it off with, oh, a little, uh, little bit of an announcement I have for y'all. A little bit of an announcement. On March 1st, uh, the State of the Union Address is happening, 
and um, we're going to do a little bit of a crossover episode here. We're going to do live streaming of the event. You can come watch it right on this channel. March 1st, State of the Union, come right here on this channel. It's going to be uh, Breaking Points and Secular Talk. It's going to be like a dual live streaming event. Uh, we're also going to have Marshall there as well. Marshall hosts Sager's other show with him, the Realignment Podcast. So it's going to be myself, Crystal, Sager, and Marshall. Um, we, we're going to have some guests pop in as well, which should be interesting, should be fun. Uh, I think Marianne Williamson is going to come talk to us and, and maybe uh, somebody else as well. So it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. I haven't, for the longest time, I sort of um, stayed away from doing more live events because I like to soak in the things as they're happening, whether they're State of the Union or debates or inauguration or whatever, um, and sort of live tweet it and and sit on it for a day and then give my take on it. But, you know, now we have the capacity to do it live and I could still do those other things. So, you know, I'll be live tweeting it as I'm watching it with you guys. There'll be a little pre-show that we do, a little post-show that we do. should be a lot of fun. I'm actually really excited about it. And we'll probably, uh, you know, we'll see, but we'll probably start doing live coverage of the debates and stuff as well when the debates roll around for the next presidential race and things of that nature. So really excited, really looking forward to it. Live coverage, State of the Union, March 1st. Everybody come here right on this channel to come watch it. Okay. Now let's jump into the meat and potatoes, y'all. Meat and potatoes time. Meat and potatoes time. It's meat and potatoes time. So the crisis in Ukraine with Russia has now uh, gotten to a fever pitch. It has escalated to violence. Violence is now happening. That is not good. Uh, Some people think it's hyperbolic when I say we have the potential of World War III here. I assure you it is not hyperbolic. When you have two nuclear-armed powers effectively in a proxy war, or it's actually it's more than that. It's like a semi-proxy war because Ukraine would be the West proxy, but Russia is Russia. And so they're not even using a proxy. They're using themselves. I mean, I guess you could say the Russian separatists who are involved in this in Ukraine would be their proxy, but you get the point. This is real serious stuff that we're dealing with. So I want to give you guys all the updates, but I'm going to warn you up front, man. When I was watching everything unfold, trying to keep up, digging every time a new event occurred, I dug into it immediately to see what exactly is going on here. I want to make sure I get everything right for the audience. Well, guess what? You're not going to be surprised to learn there is massive disagreement as to who's the aggressor and uh, who's on the defense. And so what I'm going to do here is tell you what both sides are saying, and then you can make up your own mind. So first, I want to go to a little news clip here from an outlet called DW News. It's a German public broadcaster. Uh, the reason I chose them to give more of the, the West perspective here is because I feel like they're generally a lot more balanced and less psychotic than U.S. outlets. And by the way, I will get to U.S. outlets a little bit later in this. So I'll tell you what, what they're saying and the line that they're going with. But here's DW News on what's happening. And then when we get back, I'll show you what uh, Russia is saying through RT. So take a look at this. 
Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky is calling for face-to-face -face talks with Russia's President Vladimir Putin to resolve the crisis between their countries. Zelensky was speaking at the Munich Security Conference here in Germany. He said Ukraine will not respond to growing provocations in the eastern part of the country, but will defend itself against Russian hostility. Kiev says two of its soldiers died in an attack over the weekend, a shelling by Russian-backed separatists intensifies. On the lookout as shells fall on Ukraine's eastern front. Government forces say they have been ordered to show restraint. Right now we don't respond to their fire because so they're shooting at us now, at the command post. Our commanders don't allow us to fire, and we are following orders even if there is a wish to respond. Because the enemy is waiting for us to shoot back. But if there is no political agreement, things will get resolved with military power. Ukraine's interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, came under fire while visiting soldiers in the east. He was brought to safety. I am a civilian. I am not a soldier. I am shocked. And I know that the civilians who live here permanently feel this fear. A fear that is uprooting lives as the crisis intensifies. Residents of Ukraine's separatist regions boarded trains bound for Russia. My husband said, go away, take the kids and go. Their physical and psychological health is more important than anything else. On Saturday, Russian President Vladimir Putin oversaw military drills with Belarus. The exercises include nuclear-capable missiles. NATO has joined the U.S. in warning that Russia is planning a, quote, full-fledged attack against Ukraine. Uh, how imminent is that the threat of a full-fledged attack, as was just mentioned in our report? According to the U.S., but also according to NATO, it is very imminent, even though there's still some room for, for diplomacy as there are ongoing talks just right now between France President Macron and President Putin. So we do not know, of course, when this is going to happen, but just the latest development here that is really increasing the pressure, according to NATO, on Ukraine is uh, the very fact that statements from Belarus that their joint military drills with Russia are going to be extended beyond Sunday, beyond today, even though prior to that, uh, Putin said that they are going to end on Sunday. Now, according to NATO, estimated about 30,000 troops are in the north, uh, in, in Belarus, uh, neighboring Ukraine, and this could be used as an invasion, as an attack to invade Ukraine, according to NATO. We do not really know, actually, as, as there been so many exchange of, of uh, when an uh, threat or when an assault is going to take place. Here in Kiev, at least, people are trying to hope that there's still room here to avert and to avoid the worst, a bigger escalation. The recent shelling of Ukrainian-controlled areas which hit a kindergarten among other targets has been blamed on Russian-backed separatists. Our correspondent, Matthias Bullinger, visited the area to get a first-hand view of the situation and how it's affecting local residents. Okay, so there you have it. The main claims are Russia, or at the very least Russian separatists within Ukraine, are uh, firing on Ukrainian soldiers, and now you have Russian separatists in the region, who, by the way, they declared independence for two ethnically Russian regions in Ukraine. A lot of people in those places are now hopping on trains to Russia. Now, when I look at that, I go, ooh, that's not a good sign, because who, who told them to, hey, all of you guys should hop on a train and get out of here? One would think the Russian government <laughs> said to them, like, just so you know, some stuff's going to go down, ski, so you might want to protect yourself and your family and skedaddle. So, I mean, that's a, obviously a red flag right there. 
Uh, another red flag is that the, the war games and drills from Russia and Belarus are now continuing. They were supposed to end on Sunday. Now they're being extended beyond Sunday. Um, French President Macron has stepped in and said, look, I'm going to talk to Putin and I guess try to de-escalate, negotiate, or do something. That was the original news. That was the news for about half a day. And then we learned that Macron actually set up a meeting between Biden and Putin. Uh, they both agreed to it, but Biden has the, um, the caveat of, I'm only going to do it if you don't invade Ukraine. So don't, like, don't invade Ukraine now, and then we meet after you've already invaded Ukraine. I'll meet with you, but don't invade Ukraine, and let's talk effectively. So, and then you also saw at the end there, you know, the claim is Russia or Russian separatists are shooting on, they shot at a Ukrainian uh, preschool or kindergarten, and, you know, somebody went to survey the, the damage over there. Some Ukrainian official went to survey the damage over there. So that's the, the claim from um, the, the Western side of this. Now let me show you what they're saying on RT about this. Take a look. Meanwhile, three civilians were reportedly killed in artillery shelling this morning in eastern Ukraine. It did happen in the breakaway Lugansk Republic, and we can get more details now from RT's Roman Kostadas, who's in eastern Ukraine for us. Uh, hello to you, uh, Roman. Just give us more details then about what we know concerning this latest attack. Uh, absolutely. Well, artillery duels uh, continue in Lugansk and here in Donetsk uh, as well. But in this particular instance, uh, a village in uh, self-proclaimed Lugansk People's uh, Republic uh, was uh, shelled, and as a result, uh, two civilians have been killed. According to representatives of the People's Militia in Lugansk, the Ukrainian army tried to advance on uh, those positions, but uh, uh, those attempts had uh, failed. Now, like I said, it's Two civilians uh, were killed uh, in uh, this attack. Their home was uh, completely destroyed, and uh, they were basically buried under the rubble, and uh, their bodies uh, burned completely. So Russia is claiming, oh, we weren't the aggressor. It was Ukraine who fired on us, and in fact, we have two dead civilians as a result of what they did. And then there was another thing I saw about some car exploded uh, in the area that they're blaming on Ukrainian soldiers now. So you're getting two very different pictures of how this is unfolding, how it's going down. Ukraine is saying Russia or Russian separatists are the aggressors. Russia is claiming Ukraine uh, are the aggressors. Um, when I look through it and break it down, my sincere answer is I have no idea who started it. Now, the reason why I have no idea is very simple. On the Ukrainian side of the equation, there's a, you know, a, a battalion that works officially with the Ukrainian government called the Azov Battalion. They are dyed-in-the-wool neo-Nazis, and that's a known fact. And so, you know, we've armed them. We've supported them. There was a big scandal over it. We temporarily stopped the arming of them, and then when nobody was looking, we started rearming them again. But it was a big scandal not too long ago that, you know, we're arming neo-Nazi factions in Ukraine. So... If they're involved, you know, not the, the most trustworthy sources. <laughs> I tend to think neo-Nazis generally are bad and might skew the facts. But on the flip side, this also might be the exact situation that that great, uh, what's the guy's name? Clint Ehrlich, I think his name was. Um, you know, he's written for a bunch of uh, various publications. 
And he had a very detailed thread as to how he thinks everything's going to unfold. And what he said is, a sudden invasion from Russia is off the table, meaning, you know, Wednesday was supposed to be, inva- to be the invasion. That's what the Western media outlets were reporting. There was no invasion on Wednesday. And he did a long, detailed thread where he said, look, but a possibility is Russia claims, look, we've already destroyed the West and their credibility. They were saying an invasion was going to happen on Wednesday. It didn't happen. We won without firing a shot. We're exposing, like, the liars that these people are. And so now we're withdrawing. Putin announces, oh, we're going to withdraw. Um, NATO, by the way, says they didn't withdraw. They said they were going to withdraw, and then they didn't withdraw. But now you have these events that nominally drag Russia back in, where they say, hey, we tried to withdraw, but that just emboldened you guys and made you guys more aggressive, and now we have two dead civilians over here. So now, you know, I, ha- I have to go in, Russia has to go in to protect the ethnic Russian separatists in the region. So it's not on me, it's on you. I'm acting defensive here. And what the guy said in the thread is, it's possible that you get, like, some sort of a false flag attack from Russia, which nominally drags them back in so they could but, you know, whine and play the victim as they're actually the aggressors. So I, I think of that threat as well as I'm watching what's unfolding here. I think, look, it could have been neo-Nazi elements of Ukraine that fired on Russian separatists, or it could have been, you know, Russia sort of staging something to drag themselves back in on purpose. And the other, you know, point of evidence in that direction is like, why would you amass 130,000 or 150,000 troops on the border in the first place if you didn't have some intention of like going into Ukraine? So, look, man, it's hard to tell. But what I want, the other thing I want to tell you guys is if people are giving you, like, real concrete answers, like they know what they're talking about on this front, they don't know what they're talking about. Nobody really knows. Like, we're all doing our best to look at all the evidence, look at all the news, and read the tea leaves and sort of piece it together because clearly we're not getting an objective picture. And beyond that, so this really is something to me. So at the same time that this is going on, the propaganda in U.S. media has been ramped up even to a more absurd degree than it was before. And before, they were falsely declaring an invasion was going to happen on the wrong date, which is as serious an error as you could ever make. So the same night all this stuff is happening, 60 Minutes runs a segment. Olivia Troy, Homeland Security Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, speaks with 60 Minutes for the first time about the summer of 2019 when she says, quote, a piercing feeling on the side of her head developed while leaving the White House grounds. And the claim is, here we go again, the, the secret microwave weapon that was used on U.S. officials in Cuba, a Russian microwave weapon, was actually used on U.S. soil by the White House. There's like a secret microwave ray gun that's being used by the Russians. And the media has developed this entire narrative around this. Congress passed, I think, with every, everybody voting in favor of, like, paying these people some sort of restitution, they all voted, like, yeah, if you, got the, you know, if you were attacked by the evil Russian microwave gun that doesn't exist and there's no evidence that exists, then we'll pay, you, you know, we'll pay you money. I mean, this is propaganda to a degree that is beyond absurd because there's never been any evidence. Nobody's ever presented any evidence of this. And, in fact, there's an article that came out uh, recently, which said they claim it was some sort of microwave gun. We actually found out it was crickets. Crickets were making a noise in Cuba, and pe- some people got headaches, and they said, like, oh, we're being attacked by a secret microwave Russian gun. Again, zero evidence, zero proof, and they have just ran with this narrative at 100 miles an hour. On 60 minutes, they covered this and acted like it was factual. 
this is as bad as propaganda gets. But maybe I'm wrong because it actually got a little bit worse. So John Hudson uh, says, this is um, in the Washington Post. He covers national security for the Washington Post. Scoop, U.S. says, let's pause on that. U.S. says, oh, I guess it must be true then. I guess, you know, whatever intelligence sources you have are only going to tell you the truth. They have no nefarious motives of their own. U.S. says Russia is compiling a list of Ukrainians, quote, to be killed or sent to camps following a military occupation. The allegation is in letter to the U.N. sent Sunday and obtained by the Washington Post. Zero evidence again. Um, They're so evil that we found letters where they're like, bro, we're going to kill Bob and Steve and Greg and Jeff, and we're going to put it in writing to make sure that it can be found and that it can be used as propaganda against us in Western media. A list of Ukrainians to be killed or sent to camps that U.S. intelligence happened to get. But, of course, there's, you know, we don't have any evidence we could show you. We don't have any proof we could show you. So, look, here's the problem in breaking down what's happening here. Um, U.S. intelligence are brazen liars. The Russian government are brazen liars. I don't trust Putin at his word for anything he fucking says. So you're dealing with a whole bunch of liars in this situation. And so it's on us to try to look through all the nooks and crannies and figure out what's going on here and who's the aggressor and and who's not and and what a solution is. And the bottom line is nobody really knows. So all I could say is, and, and by the way, I actually think Biden is a much less egregious actor than U.S. intelligence. I think they still have Cold War brain brain rot, you know, in the CIA, in the intelligence agencies in the deep state. Um, Russia is the mortal foe who must be stopped at all costs. And if we have to lie in the process, cheat, steal, doesn't matter, we're going to do it. I, think, I don't think Biden really wants some sort of confrontation with Russia. I mean, he pulled out of Afghanistan. He didn't even want the Afghanistan war to continue. Um, so Biden is a more trustworthy source, although he's not trustworthy, but he's more trustworthy than U.S. intelligence. But look, I hope the diplomacy works. I hope the negotiations work. I hope we can pull back from the brink. But, you know, look, if it is true that Russia did some sort of false flag to drag themselves back in, then it is the case that, that Putin's unappeasable if that is the set of facts that is indeed accurate. Because if, if it was a plan all along to make it look like we're being the victim, make it look like we're withdrawing, and then you go back in, then there is no deal that would appease him from doing what he wants to do. And uh, right before I started doing this segment from BNO News Breaking, UK government says Putin's plan, which will lead to an invasion of Ukraine, has effectively already begun. They say it's already begun. Now, this could just be like the thing that happened where they said it's going to happen on Wednesday, and it didn't. Or this could be accurate this time. We don't know. <laughs> but I think you get the point here. It's hard to parse through all these details and figure out with certainty what's going on. And anybody who tells you they know what's going on, they don't really know what's going on. What I can tell you is this. If I was in Biden's position, um, you know, I'd try negotiation and diplomacy. I'd ask Vladimir Putin, what exactly do you want? And don't give me the political fucking answer where, you know, this is the, card, the cards I'm going to pretend I'm playing to the West, and then here are my actual cards that, you know, I'm holding. No, uh, tell me what you actually want. Now, will you get a, 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 an upfront answer? Probably not. <laughs> but this is what you have to do. You have to sit down, you have to negotiate, you have to use diplomacy. And um, what I would leave on the table in terms of bargaining chips, I think the U.S. is right to have the Nord Stream 2 pipeline on the table and say, if you invade pipeline is dead. And what we're going to do is we'll sell American natural gas to Germany 
and we will sell it at the exact same price you were selling it to Germany, and if we have to sell it at a loss and have the government subsidize it, that's fine. We're still going to do that. So you undercut the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, you definitely have sanctions for the oligarchs on the table. Now, you guys know I'm very I'm sensitive to the idea that you sanction beyond just the oligarchs. If you sanction entire industries or you have any sanctions that hurt Russian civilians, I, I don't agree with that. I think that's effectively a war crime. I think you're creating needless victims in that scenario. It's not some random grandma on Russia's fault that Putin is doing what Putin is doing, regardless of what they might think of what Putin's doing. So I, I wouldn't sanction in a way that hurts Russian civilians, but I definitely would have on the table sanctions for the oligarchs. And most importantly, I'd be willing to make the deal. Now you say, well, this might not be the U.S.'s position to make this deal. Fair enough. But I would be willing to put on the table, look, Russia is not going to become part of NATO. Zelensky just said that the other day. The president of Ukraine was like, maybe we don't join NATO. Maybe it's just a pipe dream. Uh, but, but they're going to be armed to the teeth. And if you do anything, they have a right to defend themselves. And I have no problem providing them with those arms, given the state of affairs right now that's happening on the ground. So you don't want them to be part of NATO? Fine. They're not going to be part of NATO. I'll shake on that right now. However, don't tell me it's a red line that I can't arm them. Why would you have a problem with them being armed? Why would you have a problem with that? Let's arm them just in case there's no, just to make sure um, if Russia does anything tricky, they have the means to defend themselves. Now, you have to, again, that's tricky too, because you got to be careful not to arm the Azov Battalion. You know, I would talk to Zelensky and say, you got to purge the neo-Nazis from the ranks of your military. We can't, have, we can't be arming neo-Nazis for obvious reasons, the most obvious reasons you could ever imagine. So you have to make sure of that as well. But uh, in principle, it's a sovereign nation. They have the right to defend themselves, and, and they have every right to weapons. So uh, I would, I'd make the deal. I'd talk to Zelensky. I'd say, look, we're, you're not going to be part of NATO, but um, you're going to have the right to defend yourselves and protect yourselves, and we'll give you the weapons to ensure that happens. But you've got to ask the neo-Nazis. So um, that's where it stands right now. I'll say, I think it, I don't think it's looking good, guys. I don't. I think we're, I think there is going to be some sort of uh, even worse situation that unfolds. We're already seeing violence. Like I said, Russia's claiming Ukraine was the aggressor. Ukraine is claiming Russia's the aggressor. Um, who knows what everybody's true intentions are? I don't trust Vladimir Putin for a second. I also don't trust the U.S. deep state for a second. And I'll end on that point because I feel like this is really important. You have to make sure you check your own biases in this situation because people usually fall into one of two categories when talking about this, uh, this crisis. One category is Vladimir Putin is the embodiment of all that is evil He's deeply nefarious, and so everything you look at that he does has to be viewed through that prism. Um, and in that conception of things, the U.S. is like sort of a naive, fallible do-gooder, just stumbling around trying to do the right thing. Um, and then the other way people look at it is, is the reverse, is like, you know, Putin is actually purely acting defensively. He's the naive do-gooder, um, and the West, are the embodiment of all things evil and nefarious. And in my experience, from what I've seen, at least in the online left, you really do fall into one of two categories. But my contention to you guys is, I think both of those perspectives are wrong. I think it's much more likely the case that 
both sides are nefarious. Both sides are um, generally do things that are evil and terrible and wrong, but they also might believe their own bullshit. I think there's variations uh, in terms of different factions and different players involved in the respective two states, two governments. But I think, look, look at the history of U.S. foreign policy. You see very clearly, you know, we're the baddies. We're the aggressors. Post-World War II, I mean, World War II is like the last intervention that went well for the U.S. and that was like a, a noble intervention. So we're the imperialists. We're the bad guys. We do these nefarious things. But I think people genuinely drink that American exceptionalism Kool-Aid and this idea that, like, we're the world police and, and we're the sole superpower for a reason and we need to uphold order and justice. So I think that's the case for America, but I also think that's the case for Russia. I think the same thing is true of Russia, that while everybody thinks they're acting for the good, the way their actions actually manifest are bad and evil and wrong. And so I think it's a much more realistic view of the conflict to look at it like that. Like everybody's kind of a bad actor, but they think they're a good actor. And that's why we're up shit's creek without a paddle right now. And again, I guess this will be the final point I end on. When was the last time? So assuming, let's assume for a second the, the Putin evil, American naive do-gooder situation is accurate, which it's not, but let's just assume for argument's sake that's the case. Even if I grant people that, when was the last time an outright U.S. intervention went well? Let's say we deployed the troops, we got boots on the ground, we're in like a hot war on the ground with Russian separatists in Ukraine on the side of Ukraine, whatever, sending the bombers and everything. First of all, terrifying because you have two nuclear armed powers in direct conflict now, Russia and the U.S. But when was the last time an intervention, even assuming the U.S. means well all the time across the board, which they don't, but even assuming that, when was the last time an intervention like that went well? I just told you it was like World War II. Maybe you can make a stretch of an argument for Korea, but really World War II. Is this really something you want to put it on the plate of the American people? Is this really something you want to tell poor people who can barely pay the bills in Kentucky and Harlem? Hey, random 22-year-old, go pick up a gun to defend Ukraine. I don't think I'd send those kids to go fight and die for that. Let me tell you something. The one war that I really would have picked up arms to go fight in, if I was drafted or whatever, I would, have, I would have went to fight Hitler in World War II. I mean, that is, he really was almost uniquely bad in history. Like, the whole point was, I want to exterminate <laughs> all the people who I don't view as pure-blooded enough. And he, he even declared war on the U.S. So World War II, that was such a noble war, even my punk ass would have picked up a gun and went to go fight. Since then, I don't see a single one that I would have picked up a, a, a weapon to go fight in. And so I'm just trying to apply the same standards uh, to, to everybody else that I apply to myself. If I wouldn't go fight and die in this conflict, if it's not an absolutely necessary conflict, then I wouldn't send somebody else's kid to go fight and die in that conflict. And I think um, it's very easy to get caught up in the moment and get lost in the propaganda and the narratives and to act like, well, we got to stand up to them. And it's like, there are certain things you can do and should do to curtail action like this, to incentivize better action, um, to prevent a worst case scenario. But Sending Americans to go fight and die, we're not at that point yet. Now, if we happen to live in the scenario where Vladimir Putin genuinely is unappeasable and he has Hitler-like ambitions of global domination, which I don't think he does, but assuming we get to a point where it's clear that that's 
what he wants and that's who he is, well, then we all say, okay, of course, you got, you know, we got to go stop Hitler 2.0. But I, I don't think he's Hitler 2.0. I think he's bad. I think he's evil. I think he's wrong. Um, but I think he has more sphere of influence uh, domination goals than global domination goals. And sphere of influence domination goals are bad enough. Um, and that should be condemned. But it's also not the thing I would go fight and die for myself. And that's just my honest assessment of the situation. So um, there you have it. That's the breakdown. Russia claims Ukraine is being aggressive. Ukraine claims Russia is being aggressive. There's already been violence. We're on the brink of war if we're not already at war. Let's hope yet again cooler heads can prevail because um, this can go real south real quick, and nobody should want that. Okay, next. The Canadian police have now gone in and broken up the trucker protest slash blockade. Let me go ahead and show you this article here. This is in Forbes. The demonstration is over, interim Ottawa Police Chief Steve Bell said in a press briefing Saturday afternoon, adding that police have told protesters to leave and that they would escalate and forcibly remove holdouts. Ottawa Police said they had made 170 arrests since Friday and towed away 53 of the vehicles that protesters of the government's anti-COVID measures had used to block down streets as well as issued 3,600 tickets. Among those arrested were three leaders of the protest, Pat King, Chris Barber, and Tamara Litch. News News agency, the Canadian press, reported protesters shouted shame and freedom as they pushed back at police officers who pushed the crowd back, wielding batons. Police used pepper spray on the crowd, while CBC showed protesters uh, pouring water and rubbing snow on their eyes to clear their vision. Ottawa police tweeted Saturday morning they had arrested a protester who allegedly launched a gas canister and said they had arrested others who were in body armor and had smoke grenades on them and miscellaneous fireworks in their bags. Okay, Um, so I'm going to give you some more information on it, but first I want to show you what the Canadian police are saying, because this moment went viral for good reason. Take a look. I'm from independent media. So I was in a crowd yesterday. Um, I was unfortunately hit with some pepper spray. I just have a question. Uh, There's some video cameras that the police are using, and uh, some news outlets are reporting that you're gathering intelligence with And the simple answer is yes. 
if you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. This investigation will go on for months to come. It has many, many different streams, both from a federal uh, financial level, from a provincial licensing level, from a criminal code level, from a municipal breach of court order, breach of court injunction level. It will be a complicated and time-consuming um, investigation that will go on for a period of time. You have my commitment that that investigation will continue and we will hold people accountable for taking our streets over. So there you have it. Now, um, they are saying that the Ottawa mayor is saying he wants the authority to sell the vehicles that were seized from protesters and use the proceeds to cover the costs that were incurred. So just basically civil asset forfeiture, legalized robbery by cop, to sell it and then use the money to fund how much it costs to break up the blockade and the protest. I mean, what you just heard, too, with that press conference was, yeah, we're going to go after everybody who was involved in this. We've talked about this before, guys, in regards to BLM. And the takeaway we had when it was BLM was mostly peaceful. Most of the people involved didn't hurt a fly. They were just marching, holding signs doing legal stuff. Now, if there are people who actually committed crimes, whether it's in BLM protests or this protest, well, that's fine. You can't have people burning down buildings, for example. You know, you can't have people breaking windows and stealing stuff from shops that are not connected at all to some sort of injustice. So were there actual crimes committed? Of course, prosecute, go after them. That makes sense. Nobody would argue against that. I mean, maybe some people would, but they're being silly if they argue against that. By the same token, if anybody in these protests we're committing crimes, genuine crimes. Okay, well, prosecute them. Go after them. Totally fine with that. But they're talking more broadly than that. They're talking about, you know, like, no, we're going to try to go after everybody who was involved in this protest. Mm, I don't like that at all. And that, again, that sets a horrible precedent. And to, to seize their property and sell it, that's just legalized stealing. Keep it real. That's legalized robbery. And I don't like that at all either. Now, there was another story that went kind of viral. There was some fake news around it as well. Um, Right-wing Twitter was claiming that uh, a police officer on a horse trampled somebody to death. Uh, It turns out the person did not die, but the police did trample somebody with a horse. Now, there's conflicting reports. Some of them say, well, the horse just, you know, sort of did it out of the blue. And others say, no, the person jumped in front of the horse. Either way, I don't like it when police trample people who are protesting with a horse. And that shouldn't be a controversial thing to say. If it is a controversial thing to say to you, you need to reevaluate yourself, okay? So is this it? I don't know. Maybe it is it. Maybe the entire protest was broken up. Now, you guys know my take on this protest from the beginning. Um, the main thing that they were fighting for is we don't want any, we don't want a, any more COVID vaccine mandates. Um, My position on the vaccine mandate, I'm not in favor of a hard mandate. I'm in favor of a vaccinator test policy, which gives people the choice. If they're really dedicated to not getting the vaccine, okay, just take a test and it's fine. So I didn't really agree with the policy of the Canadian government anyway, the hard vaccine uh, policy. But really my, my overwhelming 
feeling that I got while watching this unfold was uh, jealousy, because here you have a protest that's really a right-leaning protest, and they're way more organized and orderly and disciplined than any left-wing movement I've ever seen in my life. And that tells me they had a much higher, um, you know, likelihood of success. And my understanding is, uh, you know, Crystal and I talked about this on the last Crystal Kylan Friends, there were some provinces in Canada that did, you know, make some concessions to the truckers. I don't know the specifics. I don't know if they dropped a vaccine passport or whatever in certain places. doesn't matter. I think it was a much more organized um, protest and blockade than anything I've seen the left do. And so I was kind of jealous because I want, in the U.S., I want something like this to happen, but I want it to happen for universal health care and right to a union and $15 minimum wage and, you know, paid vacation time and things like that. So, but this might be it for this protest. They may have snuffed it out using authoritarian tactics. And make no mistake about it, it is authoritarian tactics. And the precedent that's laid is now the government will do anything and everything to undermine, undermine um, threats to capitalism. Because that's the real reason why they were so hard on these protesters and went against them so aggressively is because the protesters were causing about $500 million worth of damages to the economy every day. So the blockade was kind of working. It was hard to do trade between the U.S. and Canada, and I think they're our number one trading partner. And so that's why they snuffed it out, because really, once you start impacting the economy in a very clear and measurable way, oh boy, do they get dirty. They get dirty quick. Now, again, I get it. Any, anything that the protesters were doing or, or any part of the blockade that was like clearly illegal in a way that's unacceptable, like you're blocking medicine from government, whatever, something like that. Um, I get taking action against that, but this wasn't measured. To steal the old phrase from Obama, they used a hatchet when they should have been using a scalpel. And so now the precedent that's set is, look, if you want to protest for anything, no matter what it is, if you're protesting universal health care, right to a union, or anything, if it's good stuff, if it's police reform, whatever it is, they will freeze the money that you're, uh, that you're raising on GoFundMe or whatever site, whatever crowdfunding site that you're using. They will freeze your bank accounts. They will use technology to track you down and charge you with a crime even if you didn't commit a crime, even if you were just part of the peaceful side of the peaceful protest. And um, I don't know how anybody could cheer this on, and I don't know how anybody could be happy about it. You could have nuanced feelings. You could have complex feelings about it. Like I told you guys, I do. I mean, the, the Teamsters Union, which is the number one trucker union in Canada, was against this protest. And 90% of truckers are vaccinated. So this wasn't like a, you know, a genuine working class uprising that's representing you know, majority held positions. It is just not that. It's a fact to say it's not that. So that fact needs to be known too. But in terms of the authoritarian tactics that were used to snuff this out, you should oppose them at the top of your lungs. Because what's used against them is going to be used against the, the left times 10. And we've already seen it, seen stuff like this used against the left, but now it's going to get, they're going to ramp it up. And, um, you know, you get the sense that they're so much more organized than I ever gave them credit for. You know, having the, the, this ability ready to go, the ability to freeze the GoFundMe stuff, freeze their personal bank accounts, go in there and bust it up in just a couple days is like, not a good sign, man. Not a good sign at all. So there you have it. Uh, looks like the, the trucker protest, trucker blockade, 
which by the way is mostly made up of not truckers, <laughs> uh, was busted up in Canada. And um, whatever you think of this specific protest, the precedent that was laid here is a horrendous one. Okay, next. I nearly had an aneurysm last night reading this article that I'm about to share with you guys. This is honestly the worst propaganda I've ever seen in my life. It is stunningly sloppy, lazy propaganda. So Axios wrote an article going after the left, blaming the left for future democratic losses. So let's go through it. I'll break it down and I'll try my best not to scream at the top of my lungs or have a literal heart attack on air. Squad politics backfire in Axios by a guy named Mike Allen. The hard left politics of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the so-called squad, once a dominant theme for vast numbers of elected Democrats, it never was dominant, is backfiring big time on the party in, in power, top Democrats tell us. Top Democrats tell us, because, you know, what they say is gospel. The push to defund the police, rename schools, and tear down statues has created a significant obstacle to Democrats keeping control of the House, the Senate, and the party's overall image. Okay. Only one person ran on defund the police, Cori Bush, and she won. Nobody in the squad ever said anything about renaming schools, and nobody in the squad said anything about tearing down statues. Nobody has run on that, but somehow they're taking these issues and blaming the squad for it. Let's continue. It's what we've been screaming about for a year, said Matt Bennett, co-founder of Center Left Third Way, which launched Shield Pack to defend moderate Democrats. Let me rephrase that for you, said Matt Bennett, co-founder of Corporatist Third Way, which launched Shield Pack to defend corporate corrupt Democrats. Quote, it's a huge problem. The latest sign of the backlash was the landslide 70% plus recall this week of three San Francisco school board members who were criticized for prioritizing issues like the renaming of 44 public schools, including ones honoring George Washington and Abraham Lincoln over a return to in-person classes. AOC never said anything about that. Nobody in the squad ever said anything about that. Why are you blaming them for something they never said or did? Other factors like an abrupt admissions change to a prestigious high school were at play. All politics is local. But the most liberal city and the most liberal state decided that liberal activists had gone too far. Let's continue. It's part of a barrage of evidence that the progressive activism of the squad pushed the party's image way left of where most voters are, even most Democratic voters. Representative Josh Gottheimer, the number one recipient of big pharma money, by the way, co-chair of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, told Axios, what I'm hearing at home and what I'm focused on are common sense bipartisan solutions from tackling grocery and gas prices to cutting taxes and fixing our infrastructure to investing in law enforcement and fighting crime. No, what you're doing is serving big pharma and blocking lower drug prices. Aides to several squad members declined immediate comment. This is a seismic shift from just a year ago. The signs have built steadily throughout President Biden's 13 months in office that the squad politics are problematic when you control everything. 30 House Democrats, the most in decades, have announced they'll retire instead of running in November's midterms. They see little hope of keeping the majority in this environment. Democrats lose poll after poll of generic housing matchups, which ask voters if they prefer a R or D if the election were held today. Republicans' decisive sweep of statewide offices in Virginia was powered in part by Democrats' failure to appreciate parents' skepticism about the public schools, mask mandates, policies on transgender rights, and approach to teaching about race. 
Terry McAuliffe is the quintessential corporate Democrat, and he ran on Trump bad and got destroyed, and somehow they're blaming the left for a corporate Democrat losing. Let's continue. Still not done. Also in November, voters in liberal Minneapolis rejected a proposal designed to radically constrain police. House Democrats' own polling and focus groups show many swing voters think the party is too preachy, judgmental, and focused on culture wars, according to documents obtained by Politico. Well, that part is definitely true, but again, I don't know why you're linking this with the squad when the squad is not talking about these issues that you're pretending they're talking about. They're not talking about defunding the police. They're not talking about removing statues. They're not talking about everything they listed. An Axios Ipsos Latino poll found crime and gun violence are leading worries for Hispanics, whose once reliable support for Democrats has cooled in part because of fears of Democrats embracing socialist policies, the New York Times reported. Already in midterm races, Democrats in swing districts are scrambling to distance themselves from far-left movements to defund the police and abolish ICE, the Washington Post found. When was the last time any politician said anything about abolish ICE? And they're blaming abolish ICE for how unpopular Democrats are right now? Former Senator Heidi Heidkamp of North Dakota says her fellow Democrats are hurting themselves by not speaking out more forcefully against liberal positions that alienate rural America. Heidi Heidkamp is a corporate Democrat, is a right-wing Democrat who just lost, and they're citing her as if she's an expert on winning. Heidkamp, who heads the One Country Project, dedicated to energizing rural voters, told AP, now the brand is so toxic the people who are Democrats, the ones left, aren't fighting for the party. Yeah, Heidi, because of people like you. Heidi Heidkamp is a loser. She's a loser. She lost. She's a corporate Democrat. She's a right-wing Democrat. She's the living embodiment of what they say the Democrats need to do to win, and she lost. She is literal proof that their position is wrong in the conversation. So why is this getting me all worked up? Why is this getting me all worked up? There's a trick that they're doing here, and I hope everybody understands this, because you need to take this away from this segment. The trick that they're doing is they're conflating economic leftism with culture war leftism. There's a massive conflation here. So they say, oh, the culture war is really hurting Democrats, and that's why we have to blame AOC, we have to blame Cori Bush, we have to blame Ayanna Presley, we have to blame the left flank of the Democratic Party. Now, I'm very critical of culture war leftism, because yes, defund the police, it only polls at 18%. Nobody likes that. But guess what? Nobody in the squad has been talking about defund the police. You know, renaming the school, that doesn't poll well, all that stuff. But nobody in the squad is talking about that stuff. They are conflating culture war leftism with economic leftism. And guess what? The real problem and the real reason why Democrats are down is because they're not embracing economic leftism. Now, I'm not saying you call it socialism when you do it. In fact, you shouldn't call it socialism. That's not a good move strategically. But Democrats would be winning if they were talking about Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and paid vacation time and lower drug prices. So the real reason the Democrats are super unpopular right now, as I'm talking to you, is because they didn't get Build Back Better passed. If they got Build Back Better passed, people would have seen a material improvement in their lives, and they would support Democrats, and they would vote for Democrats. This isn't rocket science. So guess what? The people that they're blaming for the Democrats being unpopular, if they listened to them, the Democrats would actually be more popular. Because these were the people who were most in favor of build back better, and those specific policies which would have helped the American people. Guys, I'm not, everything I'm saying to you right now is backed up with data. Okay, so let me pull, pull up the poll. Build back better poll. We know there's been a number of very specific polls done by Data for Progress. Here we go. 
Increasing capital gains taxes on the wealthy. 72% support. Limiting deductions for wealthy business owners. 71% support. Raising income taxes on the wealthiest 2%. 71% support. This was all in the original Build Back Better bill before it was chopped 14 times. Um, Increasing taxes on large corporations. 65% support. I got more for you. Replacing roads and bridges, 87% support. Investing in American manufacturing, 86% support. Repairing drinking water system, 85% support. Uh, Creating energy sector jobs, 79% support. Expanding broadband, 80% support. Um, Cleaning up mines and gas wells, 68% support. Okay, that's not even the Build Back Better stuff. That's the traditional uh, bill. Let me find the Build Back Better stuff. Here it is. Elder care, 79% support. Modernizing K-12 school building, 73% support. Electricity grid modernization, 74% support. Medicare drug price negotiation, 73% support. Lowering the Medicare age, 59% support. Universal pre-K, 59% support. Tuition-free college, 58% support. Uh, Extending child tax benefits, uh, it's plus nine. It's nine points over water. The problem is that the Democrats didn't pass stuff that improves Americans' lives. They promised the sun and the moon, and they delivered Dickie McGee's axe. And that's why they are super unpopular. When was Joe Biden his most popular? When he cut people a check for $1,400. That's when he was his most popular. Now, he hasn't done anything for a really long time, and Democrats' numbers have plummeted, and his personal numbers have plummeted to 38%. So understand what's going on here. There is a propaganda war going on where corporate Democrats, Democrats that are beholden to industry, Democrats that get paid by big pharma and the health insurance companies and Wall Street and the military-industrial complex, they are doing everything they can in their power, and it's working, by the way, to get the media to parrot their line as if it's factual. And their line is, don't look at us. We're totally fine. We've done nothing wrong. The real problem is the squad. It's the squad. It's the people who were correct about the strategy that would have worked to get Build Back Better passed. They said, you've got to keep the bills linked. Don't delink them. If you delink them, Mansion and Cinema are going to kill Build Back Better. That's exactly what happened. And then nobody in the media wrote an article saying, hey, you know what? The squad was right. We shouldn't have delinked the bills. Nobody said that. So they were proven verifiably correct about something, and nobody went out there and said, you know what? We should have listened to them. And that's the reality. If they were listened to, the Democrats would be way more popular now, at least 10 points higher, at least 10 points higher. It would be a competitive midterm race if everybody listened to what the squad was saying. Now, look, don't get it twisted. The reason why this propaganda works is because there's a grain of truth in it. And the grain of truth is, When Democrats go all in on the culture war, they get shellacked. It's true. They do. You know, it it is true that when McAuliffe went hard on, you know, followed Yunkin down the CRT rabbit hole, he looked like an idiot. He was out of touch and he got destroyed. So there is a grain of truth in that. Like I told you, deep on the police polls at like 18%. All the new woke language, like, you know, we cover the poll on Latinx, which only like 3% of Latinos like that word and use that word. And um, that stuff is real. But, but, 
haven't heard AOC, Cori Bush, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, I haven't heard them talking about that stuff at all. The only one who ran on defund the police was Cori Bush, and she won because she represents Ferguson, where there was, you know, police brutality. It was a giant, you know, national news event. None of the others talk about it. None of them talked about renaming the schools. And so they're just, they're taking all of this culture war stuff, dumping it on the lap of the squad and saying, you are defined by that, and that's why we're losing. And sometimes they do get a little too woke and a little too cringe and go down that culture war rabbit hole. But the bulk of their time, certainly recently, has more been talking about lower prescription drug prices and universal pre-K and expanding healthcare and things of that nature. And they were right, and they're taking the popular position, but they're still getting blamed. Because, guys, the game is rigged. The game is the corporate Democrats are in bed with the media, and the media is always going to push the narrative. doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is blame the left. Blame the left, blame the left, blame the left. Let's go further to the right. Let's make sure Democrats go further to the right and act more like Republicans. Well, I don't know what to tell you guys. A corporate Democrat is the president of the United States. Corporate Democrats make up the majority of the Senate. Corporate Democrats make up the majority or the plurality of the House of Representatives. Corporate Democrats have their vision right now being implemented. Right now is the ideal scenario for corporate Democrats. This is what they do with power. You're watching what they do with power. And they're the ones who own their low approval rating. They're the ones who own it. Bernie Sanders isn't president. AOC isn't Speaker of the House. Sherrod Brown isn't the majority leader in the Senate. So how can you blame the left? There's no way you can blame the left. Look, the left genuinely should, this is sincere criticism, the left genuinely should drop the unpopular culture war stuff. They should. Even if they kept doing the culture war stuff and they delivered economically, I think the Democrats would still win. Now, they would be unbeatable, though, if they totally dropped the culture war stuff and went all in on the economic leftism. And, you know, look, FDR is the evidence of that. The guy won the White House four times. The Republicans literally came up with term limits because they thought they could never beat a Democrat because FDR was so goddamn popular. When he was president, there was a time when Democrats had 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate. Just astonishing the numbers. Why? Because he actually delivered. He had downsides, of course. Japanese internment, terrible. There were a number of things that you can point to that were like, oh, that's horrific. But the economic leftism was clear, and it helped people. And as a result of it helping people, they rewarded the party that did it. So I'm so sick of this rank propaganda. And again, Mike Allen, total corporate whore, total sellout. Just, I mean, by the way, this guy takes so much money from corporations himself. Himself. He used to be with Politico. You see stuff in Politico sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Now let me tell you what's going on in foreign policy. Just astounding corruption. And this guy's in bed with the corporate Democrats and pushing their narrative. The corporate Democrats' narrative is not only drop the culture war stuff, it's also let's not do anything for the American people, let's serve corporations, and let's pretend like that's a winning strategy. It is definitely not a winning strategy because we're seeing the evidence of it right now, right in front of our faces. You have the exact government you want. Own it. Own it. Okay, next. 
Next, here we go. Here we go again, y'all. Let me show you uh, what has been widely reported yesterday, this weekend. This is in the New York Post. French model, French model agent pal of Jeffrey Epstein found hanged in prison cell. Now, you're not going to believe the next fact I'm about to tell you, but this has also been reported. Uh, he was in a, a maximum security prison, and yet again, the video camera was disabled. Now, I'll just tell you guys up front the theory that I think is most plausible. The theory that I think is most plausible is that they're trying to send a message to Ghislaine Maxwell. They're trying to say, hey, don't you dare talk. Don't you dare squeal. Don't you dare give up where the bodies are buried. Don't you dare give up, I'm sure, the, the lists that Epstein compiled to have dirt on all the people who we had dirt on. Because if you do that, this is what's going to happen to you. I genuinely think that's what's going on. I'm at the point now where anybody who, anybody who doesn't think that Epstein didn't kill himself and this guy didn't kill himself, I think you're naive dupes. I do. And I already see the propaganda now trying to push back in the other direction and say, no, no, no. Not only did Epstein not kill himself, this guy, or not only did Epstein kill himself, this guy definitely killed himself too. And what's the, the argument that they're making? They're saying, well, he had tried to take his life previously. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it's just a total lie that they made up. But, man, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The guy who was a close associate of Jeffrey Epstein and his partner in crime also kills himself as right on the verge of it being possible that we get to know more of the details as to who was in this elite sex, sex pest pedo club. So uh, let me just give you some more information on this guy. His name is um, Jean-Luc Brunel, the French, French model agent who was charged with securing girls and young women for billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein was found dead Saturday in a Paris prison cell. He, uh, this guy, Jean-Luc Brunel, was 74 years old. He was found hanging by his bedsheets in his cell around 1.30 a.m. local time. Brunel, who ran Karen, Karen Models in Paris and later formed MC2 Model Management with Epstein, was awaiting trial on charges of sexual assault and rape. He was also being investigated for trafficking minors, including girls as young as 12 years old. Brunel's lawyer insisted that the disgraced fashion fixture's decision was not guided by guilt, but by a sense of injustice. Jean-Luc Brunel, quote, Jean-Luc Brunel has never stopped claiming his innocence. He has multiplied his efforts to prove it. A judge had released him a few months ago, and then he was reincarcerated in undignified conditions. His lawyers, Matthias Chichportich, Marianne Abgral, and Christopher Ingrain said in a statement to CNN, Brunel, who is credited with launching the careers of models Chrissy, Christy Turlington, Monica Bellucci, and Angie Everhart, went into hiding after Epstein's own suicide in a Manhattan lockup in August 2019, his suicide. French police arrested Brunel in December 2020 as part of a probe into acts of sexual nature believed to have been committed by Epstein and his accomplices. 
He was released under judicial supervision for a few days in November 2021, only to be returned to custody following a decision by a court of appeal, CNN reported. The deaths of Epstein and Burnell under similar circumstances have riled up conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theorists, who believe that both men were privy to the secrets of some of the world's most powerful players, including politicians and financiers. See, that's a fact. Why are they pretending like that's not a fact? That's a fact. This article is in the New York Post, by the way. That's a fact. It's not that maybe they have dirt on people. We know they have dirt on people. Of course they have dirt on people. They ran like a pedophile sex club. They trafficked underage girls. They're, they were well-known, close to Bill Clinton and Donald Trump and, and other well-known people. It's obvious. Why are they pretending like that's not obvious? Quote, it was very convenient and yet suspicious, a veteran Paris police detective told the Post, who nonetheless said he was not yet convinced Brunel was suicided. Sure. That guy's probably in on it. Research him. Another Paris-based photographer who worked with Brunel added, It's weird. Brunel, who worked as a model agent in Paris since the late 1970s, was introduced to Epstein by his former gal pal, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was convicted of sex trafficking last year. Ian Maxwell, Ghislaine's brother, called Brunel's death really shocking. Another death by hanging in high-security prison. My reaction is one of total shock and bewilderment, he told the Post. Maxwell, one of Ghislaine's four siblings, said the family now fears for her safety at the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn where she's being held. Though he noted that it was ironic that Ghislaine is under suicide watch while Burnell and Epstein were not at the time of their deaths in their respective prisons. She was deemed a suicide risk and they are now waking her up every 15 minutes. It's a complete violation of prisoner rights and human rights. French prison authorities told Le Parisian that no breach in security at the prison where Brunel was being housed had occurred an investigation into the cause of death had been opened. The prison is known for brutal conditions as well as housing some of the world's most notorious criminals like Carlos the Jackal, who's serving a life sentence for the murder of an informant for the French government and two French counterintelligence agents. Yeah, if there was no breach in the prison, then one of the guards or one of the inmates is in on it, and they got paid to do it. Look, is it possible the guy killed himself? Anything's possible. But what do I have it at? 5% chance? I mean, really? We got these two high-profile guys who know all the details about all of the global elites who are having underage, or who are raping underage girls, and whoop, they just happen to kill themselves when they were in a position where maybe they would squeal. Maybe they would give up all the dirt. Maybe we would know in intricate detail who's involved in what, who did what, and that would bring down the whole shebang. I think this was a message to Ghislaine Maxwell. Better not say a word. Now, maybe this guy also knew stuff and he was killed for that reason, that maybe he was about to squeal or was squealing. Who knows? But um, I also think it's a message to Ghislaine. Don't you dare say a word. Better go down and serve your time. My condolences to uh, Ghislaine's family. Her maybe inevitable future suicide. Okay. All right. Now, let's talk about child poverty. This is a really devastating story. Child poverty um, has now absolutely skyrocketed because the Democrats didn't extend the child tax credit. Joe Manchin was opposed to it. 
Joe Biden didn't twist any arms. And now you're going to see the results of such a terrible move. The Washington Post says child poverty spiked by 41% in January after Biden benefit program expired, study finds. The White House was unable to extend an expansion of the child tax credit amid pushback from Senator Joe Manchin III. So, again, uh, you can see this is the Washington Post. The number of Americans, here's what they say. Take a look. The number of Americans, the number of American children in poverty spiked dramatically in January after the expiration of President Biden's expanded child benefit at the end of last year, according to new research released on Thursday. The Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University said that the child poverty rate rose from 12% in December 2021 to 17% last month, an approximate 41% increase. The study found that an additional 3.7 million children are now in poverty relative to the end of December, with black and Latino children seeing the biggest percentage point increases. The overall monthly child poverty rate rose sharply between December 2021 and January 2022, the study found. Democrats in Congress last March approved an expansion of the child tax credit that ran from July through the end of 2021. The program extended payments of $250 per month for children ages 6 through 17 and $300 per month for those under 6 to almost all families in the United States, so the benefits were phased out for wealthier families, the means testing Manchin wanted. The program's cost was about $120 billion per year. More than 61 million children in roughly 36 million households received the payment in December, according to federal data. So there was a 24% drop in hunger for families who got Biden's tax credits, among a range of other improvements in the well-being of poor children. The number of children in poverty went from 8.9 million in December to 12.6 million last month. So millions more kids are now in poverty as a result of this. You can't say enough about how grotesque this is, because this is so fixable. It's the easiest thing in the world to fix it. Yet again, if Joe Biden, and this is the Bernie Sanders approach, this is what he was telling Joe Biden to do. Get, take individual bills and put them on the floor. Individual bills. Fan the child tax credit. Put the bill on the floor. Force anybody who's against it to vote against it. Force Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin to vote against it. Now, if you do it the regular order, you need 60 votes. The Republicans will probably block it. Okay, well, let's see them vote against it. I want to see all the Republicans vote against an extended child tax credit. Let them doom millions more kids to poverty. Millions more hungry kids. Put them on the record. They're for hungry kids. We're against hungry kids. We want to fix the problem. They want to perpetuate the problem. They want to make it worse. Make them vote against it. I mean, the other thing you could do is, I told you, they could extend the chances at reconciliation they get. They could give themselves 10, 20, 30 cracks of reconciliation and just propose that bill uh, as a standalone bill and then put pressure publicly on Manchin and Sinema to vote for it. And this is one area where if you needed 51 votes to get this through, and you proposed it, and you did a public pressure campaign, you actually might get Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. You actually might get them. Because this is a public pressure campaign that can work. Because it's very clear what's going on here. Are you pro-child poverty? Is that what you are? Okay, fine. Then show, show the American people that you're pro-child poverty. This is where you need some arm twisting. You need some swagger. You need a spine if you're Joe Biden to get this done. And they didn't get it done. They didn't get it done at all. Anytime Manchin or Cinema made a peep about dropping this or that from Build Back Better, it was dropped immediately. 
There was no pressure. It was always back slapping. It was always hand holding. It was always JoJo's my boy. We're going to work something out. Well, he didn't work anything out. I mean, at the end, they basically gave him the pen and said, you write your own bill and we'll pass it. And he was still like, here's what I'm in favor of. Nothing. We already got the corporate pork bill, infrastructure bill. So I'm good. Like, that helped my corporate, corporate buddies, and I'm good. I don't care about children in poverty. If you're wondering why Democrats are getting their clocks cleaned and they're about to get destroyed in the midterms, this is exactly why. This is exactly why. Sorry, but it's got nothing to do with changing the names of schools or defunding the police or whatever issues that, are, that no national Democrats are even talking about that. Only Cori Bush does. She's the only one. And she won last time, by the way, in her district. It was a district with a lot of police brutality. This is why Democrats are losing. This is why they're getting obliterated. And you know what? They deserve it. If you can't even get this passed, you can't get anything passed. There's nothing you can get passed. They sat idly by as child poverty spiked. Now, remember, I remember all the articles that were talking about, you know, giving Joe Biden massive credit. We cut child poverty in half. Yes, we cut child poverty in half. But everybody was saying at the time, look, this is temporary. This is a temporary change. It doesn't last long. So you want to make it permanent or stop doing a victory lap. Oh, we'll come back and we'll extend it. How'd that go? You didn't do it. So now I want to see all the articles saying this is Joe Manchin's fault. This is Joe Biden's fault. I want to see segments on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. By the way, Fox News is so useless, they won't even attack Joe Biden for this. Why? Because they only attack Joe Biden from the right and make even dumber arguments than Joe Biden makes. But here he's ripe for criticism. They won't criticize him because they know the Republicans aren't going to fight child poverty. They know the Republicans are on the side of child poverty. The entire Republican Party is pro-child poverty because they're not in favor of extending this child tax benefit. And Manchin and Sinema and some of the Democrats are in favor of child poverty. And even the Democrats who are against child poverty don't have the balls to fight it out publicly to try to get this passed, to make a spectacle, to make a show, to give us even a small chance of passing this. Your government's totally, totally corrupt, totally bought and owned. And that's why people just sitting idly by as this happens. You know, look, there are a million things the media can talk about. This the fighting between Kanye West and, and Kim Kardashian and what's Pete Davidson doing and all this stuff. This is what the shit the media talks about. Again, we just saw we had 8.9 million kids in poverty, and it just shot up to 12.6 million. Millions more in poverty. By the way, it's a scandal that there was even 8.9 million in poverty. Nobody's even saying that. Keep it real, man. If this program costs, what, $120 billion, $150 billion, whatever they said, and you could cut child poverty in half, well, that would mean that for another $120 billion or $150 billion, you could eliminate child poverty. So for less than half what we spend on the military budget, for like a third of what we spend on the military budget, you could eliminate child poverty. And the government is not doing that, which means what? Which means what? They're simply pro-child poverty. Look, Child poverty, and beyond that, poverty, is a policy choice. And it's never been more clear than right now. You see the numbers. You see how it worked. It worked to reduce child poverty when they tried to reduce child poverty. Now they're not trying to do it. Not only should they extend the child tax benefit, they should make it so it eliminates poverty. You know? And look at how 
how little it is too and how big of a difference it makes. Basically even 300 bucks to, to parents for the kids. That's it. And child poverty plummets. Poverty is a policy choice. It's never been more clear. I mean, it is right there in front of us. It is as clear as day. And not only are they not trying to get back to the status quo of 8.9 million kids in poverty, not, well, not only are they not trying to get to zero poverty, child poverty, they're, they're not even trying to get us back to the status quo of 8.9 million kids in poverty. Oh, man. And the sad, one of the other sad parts about this, too, is unfortunately segments like this, which are super substantive about the most important issues, they don't even do that well. They don't even do that well. It, it is the job of the media, in part, to drive the narrative and make it a substantive moral narrative. And, you know, obviously mainstream media doesn't do that. That's laughable. And, you know, we try to do that, but sometimes keep it real. The most substantive segments don't even do the best. They actually do the worst sometimes. So I hope people care about this. I hope this matters to them. I hope this is as egregious to you as it is to me because it is, uh, it's astonishing. Really, it is. It's astonishing. We're sitting idly by as over 3 million more kids just dropped into poverty, 41% spike in child poverty. And um, the real conversation we should be having is, why do we allow for any child poverty? We could spend all this money on Wall Street bailouts, trillions of dollars on that, you know, trillions of dollars in endless wars in the Middle East with no upsides, $800 billion military budgets every year. And all it would take is what? less than $500 billion to eliminate child poverty completely, and nobody's doing it. Nobody's even talking about cutting it again. It's dead in the water. You wonder why people hate the government. You wonder why people hate politics. I think I found out why. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, um, I got a, one of my favorite stories of the day. Rory McElroy and Phil Mickelson are going at it because Phil Mickelson wants to sell out to Saudi Arabia. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
welcome back. Welcome back. Gonna do one of my favorite stories of the day. This is this is juicy. So Saudi Arabia is trying to infiltrate American professional golf and sort of almost overthrow it and become the premier golf league in the world. So there's the PGA Tour, which has been dominant. It's the the best tour in the world. Um, But Saudi Arabia is trying to overthrow them. So there's been a lot of drama going on behind the scenes that got us to this point. Saudi Arabia has been reaching out to different top American players, including Tiger Woods, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, Phil Mickelson, Rory McIlroy. The list goes on and on. And they've been throwing preposterous sums of money at them. So there was a report that Bryson DeChambeau got, I don't know if the number was $130 million or $150 million. I've seen some conflicting stuff, and I'm not quite remembering what the number was. But uh, he was offered that much money to be the face of this new Saudi golf league. Um, now, this has led to a fissure behind the scenes among the players because some players are very hard-nosed on working with Saudi Arabia for moral reasons on the one hand, but also on the other hand, at least in the case of Tiger, you know, his whole legacy is on the PGA Tour. And so to come up with this new tour and change the way they do it, it's like, you can't really do an apples-to-apples comparison about who's the greatest of all time and stuff like that if you have a totally new tour with totally new tournaments. Right now, the way it works is there's four major championships, the British Open Championship, the U.S. Open Championship, the Masters and the PGA Championship. If you switch up the formula, you know, I don't know if the majors would be touched like that, but other events might be changed, and it would really change things up and shake things up. But I think the long game of the Saudis is let we want to be the world premier tour and eventually snuff the PGA Tour out of existence. Okay, so... The, um, the Saudi Golf League hired Greg Norman, who's, by the way, a well-known, like, hardcore capitalist and is super greedy. His politics are very right-wing. And um, they hired him to be the, the liaison to the tour and outreach to all the guys and give them deals and whatnot. Um, well, Phil Mickelson said something recently in, in a book that I think, I don't know if it came out already or if it's about to come out. But the media got a hold of what Phil Mickelson said about this Saudi golf tour, and it was abysmal. So let me go ahead and show you that. Even though the Saudi Arabian government has been accused of myriad human rights violations by watchdog groups around the world, Phil Mickelson says he is willing to get involved with the Saudi finance breakaway golf league to have leverage with the PGA Tour. Quote, they're scary motherfuckers to get involved with, Mickelson told author Alan Shipnick who posted an excerpt from his upcoming book, Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar, on the Fire Pit Collective website Thursday. They killed Washington Post reporter and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. Mickelson continued in an interview that Shipping said took place in November. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA Tour operates. Well, <laughs> so I'm going to work with a brutal authoritarian theocracy dictatorship to change how the PGA Tour operates. 
I mean, the obvious criticism everybody is making is like, well, if you know how bad they are, and clearly he does, so he can't claim like ignorance. He just laid out one of the many reasons why they're horrible. By the way, let me add another one. They're doing a genocide in Yemen. They are killing women and babies and children and starving the country, blockading the country. It is a genocide. But clearly he knows how bad they are. He knows how bad they are, and he's saying, well, what am I going to do? I'm trying to use that as leverage against the PGA Tour. No, if you know how bad they are, that's a reason to not even take the phone call, to not even talk to them. I mean, look, to draw an analogy, and I, don't, I, I really don't like Godwin's Law, right? You never bring up the Nazis because that shows almost like a weakness of your argument. But it's somewhat analogous, isn't it? Like, well, why am I working with Goebbels and the Third Reich? Because, look, I need to use that as leverage to, you know, change the terms of my own contract with the PGA Tour. Uh, nah. So everybody's ripping him for this. Everybody's saying, look, it's amorality plus greed, and that now equals immorality. I saw somebody say that uh, on Twitter. I think that's exactly right. He's not thinking about it from a moral perspective. It's like amoral plus the greed of I want to make more on the PGA Tour now leads to immorality. No, you shouldn't, you shouldn't work with them. You, obviously, you shouldn't work with them. That's obvious. Now, you could say, well, hey, hold on. The American government, we did the illegal war in Iraq, killed hundreds of thousands of people. Like, we did torture. Guantanamo Bay is still open. Like, we're also human rights violators. Yeah, but the PGA Tour is not the American government. <laughs> Jay Monahan, the head of the PGA Tour, never drone striked anybody. Like, what are we talking about here? So, okay, wait. So, Rory McIlroy gets involved, and he's asked, basically, What'd you make of Phil's comments earlier in the week? I love this. Rory is now, he's the man. He said, I don't want to kick somebody while he's down, obviously, but I thought they were naive, selfish, egotistical, and ignorant. Lots of words to describe that interaction he had with Shipnick. It was just very surprising and disappointing. Sad. I'm sure he's sitting at home sort of rethinking his position and where he goes from here. Damn, Rory. That, that's an all-time use of the word but. I don't want to kick somebody while he's down, but selfish, naive, egotistical, and ignorant. Uh, look, he nailed it. The fact of the matter is, at least when it comes to Rory and Tiger, yes, part of the reason why I think they're taking their position is they know how bad Saudi Arabia is and they don't want to get involved with people like that. I do think that's part of it. But I also think with Rory, same with Tiger, when your legacy is on the PGA Tour and he's also still like in his prime, in his prime age, you don't want to just switch everything up and take a gamble and take a risk and change the way they do things completely. So there's like career reasons, personal reasons, but also the moral reason why he's taken that position. You know, the reasons matter, but ultimately he lands on the correct position and he's right about what Phil Mickelson said. Now, by the way, I'm going to get super into the weeds because you guys know I'm a golf nerd. Golf and politics is like the perfect story for me. It's the intersection of two things that I love massively. So what are Phil's gripes with the tour? that he's like, you know, he wants to, what, get a better deal from the tour. Well, first of all, let me tell you, Phil Mickelson's net worth. So you get a sense of who we're dealing with here. So he thinks the players are getting screwed, okay? He has a $400 million net worth and a salary of $50 million per year. Even if this is wrong and this is, you know, over it, what, $300 million net worth, $25 million per year? Let me play the world's smallest violin for you. So what's his gripe with the tour? Well, he thinks the players are getting screwed 
because he says, well, the media rights of the tour are owned by the tour, and so basically we're underpaid for the value that we bring in. That's the argument that he makes. Um, now, the way it actually works is the PGA Tour works like virtually every other pro sports league with a minor difference. Now, this minor difference does make the tour worse, in my opinion, but um, it is pretty much the only difference between the PGA Tour and other pro tours or pro league sports leagues. About 55% of the money of the media rights goes to the players. 45% goes to the tour. Um, it's about the same for other leagues. The difference is on the PGA Tour, you have independent contractors and not employees. So, you know, they, they make their own schedule and they're not technically employees, which as you all know from previous segments we've covered, that means you don't have certain labor protections that you would have if you were categorized as an employee. If you're categorized as an employee, there are more perks and benefits that go along with that. Um, I don't know what the situation is like on the PGA Tour with who gets health care and who doesn't, but, you know, Phil worth $400 million, makes about $50 million a year, and he's complaining effectively that he's underpaid. Now, in response to a lot of this pressure and the Saudi Golf League um, trying to become the top game in town and snuff out the PGA Tour, the PGA Tour has made changes because it is being, it's functionally being used as leverage by not just Phil but other players. And so now the PGA Tour has come up with this thing called the Players Impact Program, which is they've taken – tens of millions of dollars, I forget the exact number, maybe like $40 million or something like that, and they, uh, they say whoever makes the most splash on social media, gets their name out there the most, generates buzz and talk around the tour, you get $8 million as a bonus for the season. And so this was like one of their ways of re- you know, responding to the Saudi golf league pressure, to, hey, we got to pay our players more and keep them happy. So they did that. Now... Now let me give my position on all this stuff, because that's the gist of it. That's what's going on. There are other minor issues that are involved, like the Saudi Golf League was going to be more of a team event, not just individual events. And so now PGA Tour is going to introduce, like, some more team events and whatnot to, again, try to outcompete that tour. Here's the problem. I mean, Phil, obviously, with the immorality and wanting to work with them and all that, that's obviously a big issue. But here's the thing that annoys me. So Phil's acting like he's being, you know, Mr. Working Class Hero here. The players are getting screwed, and, you know, so we've got to look out for the players and management is greedy and all that stuff, which on its face you look at it and go, hey, is he showing solidarity with the other golfers? Maybe it makes sense. Maybe what he's saying makes sense. The real problem with the PGA Tour is this. If you are one of the worst players on the PGA Tour or you're, like, new to the PGA Tour, uh, I don't even know, what is it, 125, 150, something like that, players, If you're towards the bottom, you don't really do that well financially. If you're part of the other leagues which are affiliated with the PGA Tour, like the minor leagues of golf, which is called the Corn Ferry Tour, you can barely eke out a living if you make a living at all. A lot of those guys are in massive amounts of debt. If you uh, work at a tour event to just make the event work, because golf events are four days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday usually, And if you're somebody who stocks the waters on the first tee or puts up the ropes to keep the gallery out from inside or, you know, is one of the marshals that stands there all day in the hot sun and holds up the sign, all of those people are volunteers. All of the players who are not in the top tier of PJ Tour players, or a lot of them, are sort of scraping by and don't do well. The other thing is, in, in professional golf, there's this thing called the cut. So you play Thursday, Friday, and if you're in the top half of the field, you make the weekend. If you're in the bottom half of the field, you make $0 and 0 cents, and you're out. You don't even get to play the weekend. 
So you can be a professional golfer, go play two days, make no money, and spend 3000 or $5,000 between food and the hotel and all the other shit, and so you lost $5,000 for the week, and this is your job. So you can go into debt. So the real problem, in my opinion, is they don't pay the volunteers at all. You have to go and, 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 and volunteer to work at the PGA Tour. They have the money to pay these people. They don't want to pay these people. So they don't pay the volunteers when they should pay them. Uh, they don't, the people at the bottom of the tour don't make nearly enough money. And they don't even pay, like, you know, an allowance or a stipend to the people who missed the cut so that they could cover their costs. So the real problem is there's massive income and wealth inequality within the PGA Tour where the people at the top make all the fucking money. And the people at the bottom don't make much at all. On the minor league tour, they make nothing. They're, almost all of them are in debt. They can barely get by. That's the real problem, is you need to get less income and wealth inequality among the PGA Tour. You need to pay people, if they miss the cut, something, at least to cover their bills, and pay the people who are volunteers who make the tour work. That's the real problem. But what Phil wants to do is further exacerbate the income and wealth inequality by giving more of the money to the people who are already at the top and don't need any more money. That's the reality of the situation. So, and clearly, he's, he's willing to work with Saudi, the Saudi Arabian government to do it, and that just shows his character. That just shows he's, the greed comes first. And uh, I think Rory's right to rip him. Tiger said no from day one to the Saudi league, and he was very clear about that. The people who were interested in the talks were Dustin Johnson and and um, Bryson DeChambeau, which says a lot about them in the first place. And they have, uh, they've now come out and said, no, we're with the tour. We're always going to play with wherever the best people are playing. So it's been a tough day for Greg Norman. It's been a tough day for Phil Mickelson. It's been a tough day for uh, the Saudi Golf League, which is trying to launch. And um, it looks like it might be dead in the water. I certainly hope it's dead in the water. I really do. And um, the changes that the tour should make are not to have more wealth at the top of the distribution. The changes that the tour should make are to help people in the minor leagues and the people in um, the people who are in the bottom half of the PGA Tour players. I'm sure there are other things, other changes you could make that would be more reasonable too, but the media rights thing is a little bit, it's up in the air because every sports league works like that. The reason the PGA Tour owns the media rights is because you can't, get the ex- exclusivity with the TV deals unless they own the media rights. And so if you get rid of the media rights, well, then there is no PGA Tour. And, like, what are you going to do? You're going to have one player streams on, you know, Disney for their round, another player streams on, I don't know, USA, another one streams on CBS. And it, it would be to- a totally decentralized mess. Maybe the players would get compensated better, but the product overall just becomes irrelevant if you go down that road because it's a total mishmash of confusion. So I, I don't – Phil's concerns don't seem legit and sincere to me, and they don't seem reasonable. There are changes I'd make to the PGA Tour, but it's more about helping the people at the bottom, and it's got nothing to do with making sure Phil Mickelson makes more money. That's for damn sure. All right, next. Candace Owens had another Candace Owens moment. Um, she is following what's going on in Canada. And in Canada, look, Trudeau took a lot of authoritarian measures to crack down on this blockade, this uh, trucker protest. 
And I oppose those measures. I oppose the freezing of the GoFundMe money. I oppose the freezing of the bank accounts. I oppose the, um, you know, the breaking up of the protests. If individual people commit crimes, of course, arrest them and, and have a trial. Duh. But for, to arrest peaceful protesters and say, you're not peaceful and we're going to throw the book at you and we're going to uh, try to lock you up and we're going to freeze your bank account. No, 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 no. That goes way too far. So Candace is looking at this in the same way I'm looking at this. Like, okay, this a little extreme what the government's doing. Now, I, look, I have no doubt that if the shoe were on the other foot and it were left-wing protesters, she'd be like, call in the troops, crack, them, crack down on them, freeze the bank accounts. But the difference is I'm consistent. I don't want to freeze uh, BLM's GoFundMe money. I don't want to freeze, uh, you know, some left-wing protesters' bank accounts. I don't want to send in the troops to bust them up. She probably would, but I'm consistent. For both, I would say, don't lay a precedent which is terrible, which then makes it so the government can break up any protest for any reason and, and over-criminalize it and do an authoritarian crackdown. Well, she took it a little bit too far, as only Candace Owens could. Take a look at what she tweeted. So she said, stop talking about Russia. Send American troops to Canada to deal with the tyrannical reign of Justin Trudeau Castro. He has fundamentally declared himself dictator and is waging war on innocent Canadian protesters and those who have supported them financially. 74.4K likes. Jesus Christ, 19K retweets. Now, I don't know how many of them were, um, how many of those retweets, retweets were, like, tongue-in-cheek, like, look at this idiot, what's she doing? Um, but certainly a number of them weren't. Probably most of them were sincere. Now, there was another article that came out, I think it was in The Guardian, uh, where it said, Candace Owens says to invade Australia over their COVID protocols. And I watched the actual clip of her. And in context, fair is fair, she was being sarcastic. She, was, she wasn't saying, like, let's actually invade Australia. She was comparing it to the war on terror, saying for the war on terror we invaded for these reasons. Well, this is also tyrannical and authoritarian and you know, undemocratic, so when are we going to invade Australia? So she was being sarcastic. I know because I wanted to cover the segment. I was going to cover the segment, but then when I watched the video, I was like, that's not quite fair. It's misleading to say that she plainly said, let's invade Australia. She didn't really do that. But she does appear to be really doing that with Canada. Look, maybe, maybe I'm massively autistic and that's getting in the way of the plain face reading, but you go back and read it yourself. She does appear to sincerely be arguing, let's invade Canada. Stop talking about Russia. Send American troops to Canada to deal with the tyrannical reign of Justin Trudeau Castro. He has fundamentally declared himself dictator, yada, 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 yada. Candace, www.no.com. No, no, of course not. It's funny that she under so with Russia, she somehow understands, like, why are we even talking about Russia? Well, we're talking about them because they might be invading Ukraine, a sovereign nation, so that would sort of be a problem. But she sort of understands that with Russia, it's like, hey, is that really our business? Is that really our business? Look, I feel bad for Ukraine. I hope they can defend themselves. But am I going to send a kid from Kentucky to go fight and die over there? No. So... But why wouldn't the same logic apply to Canada? What, just because they're on our border? It's different? Well, I got news for you, Candace Owens. If you're so concerned about, you know, authoritarianism, well, what do you think happens here in the U.S.? With, what, is, what do you call NSA spying? That's authoritarianism. What do you call the Patriot Act? That's authoritarianism. Under the Patriot Act, they could freeze the bank accounts of people with no due process, just like they're doing in Canada. That's authoritarianism. What do you call Guantanamo Bay? And Abu Ghraib, by the way, Gitmo's still open. 
That's authoritarianism. What do you call a drug war which locks people up for nonviolent offenses, for just putting in their body whatever they want to put in their body when they're not hurting anybody else? That's authoritarianism. There are a number of ways in which the U.S. is authoritarian. Drone kill lists. There's no due process there. Say, I don't know, I think this guy's an enemy. Let's kill him. That's authoritarian. Of course that's authoritarian. There's no other word for it. So, you want to overthrow Canada? Um, I would ask her if she wants to overthrow the U.S. government, but she might say yes, because Biden's in power. (laughs) So, but you would have had to overthrow the government under Trump, too. You just want to, like, what, do a military coup every second for everything under every administration? I got many problems with Trudeau. I do think what Trudeau is doing here is authoritarian. I do think it's a massive overreach. I don't think that's a reason for regime change, for us to go in and overthrow a sovereign nation. And you know what? I would say he's going to get punished in the next election. I don't know what the system is like in Canada. I don't know if there are term limits. Um, But according to the polls, the polls actually support what Trudeau is doing. I was surprised, too. I was. I was like, I was expecting the, you know, uh, the public to be against Trudeau on this and view this as an overreach. Turns out they don't view it like that, probably because there's $500 million a day of a hit to the Canadian economy, and people are feeling that. And if you're in an area that's blockaded when you've got to go somewhere and you can't go somewhere, yeah, you're going to not like that. But it's overwhelmingly on the side of Trudeau. I don't agree with the Canadian public on that front, but that is their position. But, it, you know, in theory, if he does a terrible job, the next time there's an election, if he could even run again, they could, you know, throw him out of there. So, and... The same thing could happen here. People don't like what Biden's doing, and they don't right now. They could just get him out of there. But, she, like, look, here's the point. There is no uh, underlying principle to what Candace Owens is saying. You know, like, I try to be objective as much as possible and apply my standards across the board. So you guys know, I've said it before, really the only time I, I use U.S. unilateral force is to defend the nation from imminent attack. That's my standard. So I could look around and see you know, terrible authoritarian actions of other governments and condemn other governments and human rights abuses and whatnot. But I still don't want to go and overthrow those governments because I don't, we're not in the position of being the world police. That, that makes no sense. When, if we are the world police, we're Alonzo from training day because we also violate international law a million times before brunch. So I don't view us as having that role. Whereas she, on the other hand, she'll flip back and forth on this. So on the one hand, she wasn't saying we should invade Australia. She was, like, mocking that idea because the war on terror was a failure and invasion of Australia would be a failure. But now she is saying invade Canada. So what do you actually think about the issue, Candace? Do you actually have a standard? And it's, no, she's just, it's the stupid red meat partisan garbage to, to her base, you know? What side are we all on today? And how will I contradict a principle I pretended to hold today? Let's do it. Like, that's what it is. That's what we're looking at right here. And it's annoying, it's obnoxious, it's really fucking stupid, and it's transparent. It's, it's incredibly transparent, which is why it's amazing that she's cultivated any kind of audience whatsoever. By the way, she has a documentary coming out about, like, all the childhood vaccines. So they started with COVID, denying the COVID vaccine. Now it's like literally every vaccine is a problem. And, and I love how I called it a documentary. It's a documentary coming out about that. I also love the, um, the wink and a nod to the conspiracy on the right that, Justin Trudeau is the son of Fidel Castro. They have a whole story. They talk about, oh, his parents visited Cuba, and look, uh, Fidel Castro looks like Justin Trudeau. Here are the pictures side by side. So this is a thing on the right now. By the way, I actually like what Jordan Peterson said about this best. He was like, even if it was true, who cares? 
Like what, do you think the politics are passed down through, through genes? Like, I know they're trying to say, like, he's like a Cuban dictator with what he does. It's like, you think the politics are passed down through the genes of the father to the son? That's not how it works. How simplistic and stupid is that? Even Jordan Peterson is like, this is okay. This makes no sense. This makes no sense. First of all, I don't think it's true. Second of all, if it was true, who cares? There is, there is no the politics passed through the genes. But they think this is like a gotcha. They say, ah, we got him. Fidel Castro's son. Fidel Castro's son. They're playing on the left who would probably look at that and say, based as fuck if they were true. <laughs> so anyway, um, man, she's so erratic. She's so absurd. Send American troops to Canada to deal with Trudeau. We're a little busy, Candace. The U.S. The U.S. is a little busy intervening in eight different countries, wanting to add Iran to the list, Russia to the list, North Korea to the list, undermining Venezuela and Cuba. I mean, we got our hands full. And by the way, we shouldn't even have our hands full with that stuff. We should be taking care of our own business, rebuilding our infrastructure, giving people free health care, free college, paid vacation time, lower drug prices. So no, let's not invade Canada. This shouldn't be a controversial thing to say from me. I don't think it is, but clearly it is in your dumb circles. Okay. We just got some more detail about what was going on behind the scenes leading up to January 6th and on January 6th between Trump and Pence. And it is worse than any of us could have imagined. From the outside, we look at it like, look, Pence is Trump's little bitch boy and he does whatever he wants and he's sycophantic. And, but really behind the scenes, Mike Pence was struggling with all the things that Trump was leading up to. He actually had a problem with Trump sowing doubt in the election and um, listening to charlatans who were trying to convince Trump, no, you actually won and we can win and here are the court cases and here's this and here's that and here's one of the arguments that was some of the evidence as to why we think you won. Pence knew it was all garbage and so he was concerned because Trump was falling for it, effectively. There were memos. We know this now from the January 6th commission. There were memos about how Trump could delay Biden uh, getting inaugurated. There were memos about, like, uh, you know, declare martial law, say it's an emergency, seize voting machines, try a redo, like all, literally, they were writing memos about this shit. Terrifying stuff. Mike Pence had a problem with it. Mike Pence has a million problems, right? I mean, like, evolution-denying, um, credits his career to Rush Limbaugh. He was a talk radio host. He reliably wrong on every economic policy. He's got a million problems. But the fact of the matter is he was starting to get skittish when like coup talk was happening. So um, now we know some more of what was going on behind the scenes and other conservative judges who were involved in this. Take a look at this clip. The Senate will come to order. Vice President Mike Pence conveyed a calm demeanor when he stood on the Senate dais, poised to certify the 2020 election win for Joe Biden. But it had been a turbulent two days behind the scenes, and former federal judge Michael Ludig was at the center of that storm. I was first called uh, by uh, the vice president's counsel, outside counsel, Richard Cullen, on the evening of January 4th. Cullen was calling for Ludig's help since the former federal appeals court judge is considered one of the top minds in the conservative legal world. Law is 
an institution separate and apart from politics. Ludig learned his former law clerk, John Eastman, was advising Trump and Pence that the vice president had the authority to overturn the election results. You can tell the vice president that I said that, 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 that he has no such authority at all. And Richard said he knows that. He says, so, you know, we, we need to do something publicly. Get your voice out to the country. Judge Ludig had just opened a Twitter account, and the two men agreed a message online would be the best way to showcase Ludig's legal analysis and provide Pence with conservative cover when he acted against the president's push on January 6th. I understood the gravity of the moment and the momentous task that, that I was being asked to help the vice president with. The 67-year-old Ludig confirmed with his tech-savvy son on how to use Twitter to blast out his lengthy message. He said, Dad, I don't have time for this. To which I said, you just tell me right now how to get this done or I'll cut you out of the will, okay? And on January 5th, Ludig tweeted his legal analysis, which Pence then cited in a letter he released saying, the Constitution does not empower the Vice President to alter in any way the votes that have been cast either by rejecting certain votes or otherwise. That position prompted Trump to go after Pence in a sense-deleted tweet saying, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. Trump had pressured Pence multiple times, both in private and in public. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. But Pence held firm, returning to the Capitol after the hours-long siege, officially certifying the election result just before 4 a.m. on January 7th. The votes for President of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden, Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. Pence called Ludig hours later to thank him. Woo, baby, goddamn. So, look, Pence is a guy, the entire four years, he did everything Trump wanted him to do. Everything. I mean, he was as loyal as loyal gets. He stuck with Trump at the end of the campaign when Trump was caught on tape saying, I grab him by the pussy, I don't even wait. The Access Hollywood tape, that blew up in the media. People thought, like, Trump's going to step down, like, he's not even going to go till election day now because it's so embarrassing it, it destroys him so much that um you know it, he's probably going to step down and there was chatter about maybe pence might abandon him or whatever pence stuck with him and pence like the you know button down conservative christian guy where he literally doesn't even meet with women alone because he's that conservative and christian and he hears this guy saying this stuff i'm sure he thought about oh, maybe I'll, I'll leave but he stayed with him he stayed with him every step during the administration every the policy move Trump made, he was there arguing for it relentlessly. Now, that, that's to his fault, too, by the way. I mean, Trump did a lot of terrible things. You know, nobody was speaking up on this. Remember when Trump assassinated a top Iranian commander and just acted like that wasn't an act of war and how devastating that was and how big of a crisis that was? And then there were return attacks. And Pence was right there with him every step of the way because Pence is deeply conservative in his own respect. But this was the one thing he's like, I can't do it, bro can't do it, can't do that, and he held firm, and he's paying the consequences for it. I mean, Trump went after him then. He's gone after him a million times since. If slash when Trump runs again, he's not going to have Pence as his VP. 
Um, Pence probably feels incredibly slighted. I mean, I know Trump feels slighted, but Trump slits everybody's throat the second he gets pissed off by them, even 1%. He really had massive high over turn, excuse me, high turnover in his administration, which uh, on the one hand, it's not a big deal because there's so many more important things to go after him for. But on the other hand, it does demonstrate that like, second he doesn't like a single thing you do, you're done, you're out. Um, and he prioritizes loyalty more than anything else. So now you know Trump was being convinced by these charlatans say, oh, you won the election. And he was putting all the pressure on Pence, like, you don't need to accept these results of this election. You could say, I won. Just say, I won. Just do that. And uh, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. I mean, guys, wh- how many times do we have to go over it? The Arizona audit, which was supposed to tr- prove Trump actually won the state, it showed Biden won by more votes than we thought he won on election day. There were 60 court cases. Trump lost almost every single one. I, I mean, it, clearly the guy lost the election. Clearly there's all conspiracy theory. But uh, he probably genuinely convinced himself it's not, and he did win. And then you tried to drag Pence along, and Pence wouldn't have it. So they hate each other now, man. There's, behind the scenes, there is a war going on. Um, Pence gave another speech recently. Uh, to, I think, the Federalist Society, which is like elite conservatives. And he was saying, he said the same thing. He's like, it is not true that I had the right to overthrow the election. So I think Pence wants to run, but he's still in the shadow of Trump. And, you know, a lot of the MAGA base turned on him. But if, if Trump's not in the picture, then maybe Pence would have a chance, but he still is in the picture. Oh, baby, this is crazy. But it really goes to show you just how close we were. We already had sort of a constitutional crisis, but it, was, it could have been way worse way worse. If Trump had somebody like Michael Flynn as his VP, I think Flynn would have actually tried to overturn the election results. I think he would have tried that. There's probably a number of other characters, I don't know how many, maybe five or six other conservative characters, that if Trump had picked them for VP, he would have tried to stay in office, even though Biden won. And what the fuck happens then? What happens then? I don't know, but it's terrifying. Uh, so in the most narrow, limited way of all time, credit to Mike Pence here. You know, it actually does go to show you, in some ways, I think Trump was better than a Pence presidency, presidency would have been. Trump acts TPP. There's no way Pence would have done that. Uh, Trump did the First Step Act, pardoned Alice Johnson. There's no way Pence would have done that. Um, so in some ways, you could say he was better Um, but in terms of just like stability of the system and abiding by norms that should be norms, like, Hey, if you lose the election, you gotta go. Pence would have been way better than Trump. Clearly. If he lost, he would have done the typical, you know, know, bow out with decency. But Trump was trying to hold on to power. Terrifying stuff. There was a secret war going on between Trump and Pence. And now you can see it. Okay. Next. David Sirota did some great reporting from the Daily Poster. Let me show you this. He says, big news, oil baron Charles Koch helped install three right-wing Supreme Court justices. Now Koch's political machine is lobbying those justices to issue a ruling terminating the EPA's authority to reduce greenhouse gas emissions during the climate crisis. The Daily Poster, this is the headline here, Coke machine pressing Supreme Court to crush EPA. Dark money groups funded by the fossil fuel billionaire are lobbying justices to block the agency from limiting greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, first of all, 
lobbying the justices shouldn't be a thing. That shouldn't be a thing. I mean, we shouldn't even have lobbying of politicians, but definitely lobbying of Supreme Court justices or judges in general should not be a thing. They're supposed to just interpret the law and uphold the law, and that's it. Um, but they're trying to get them to say, oh, the EPA doesn't have the right to uh, regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Think about that. Think about that. The Environmental Protection Agency doesn't have the authority to protect the environment, according to billionaire big money groups who stand to benefit from more pollution and more climate change, more greenhouse gas emissions. The playbook that they're going to use is the exact same playbook that they used for uh, Biden's vaccine or test policy. What they're going to say is, yes, the Environmental Protection Agency exists. It has a function. However, it doesn't have, it wasn't specifically delineated that they're supposed to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. So if you want the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, you need Congress to pass a law saying which greenhouse gas emissions, when they can regulate it, how much they can regulate it, and every little detail in between. So this is this idea, this, this conservative judicial notion that the federal government, um, the executive branch, the agencies can't do anything unless Congress spells it out in absurd detail, the likes of which they will never hit the amount of detail that the Supreme Court will turn around and then allow. You know, like um, you had with the, with the vaccine or test policy that the Supreme Court struck down, it was very clear based on the wording of the law that the federal government does have the ability to tell businesses, hey, to protect public health and well-being, you need to make sure that in the middle of a pandemic that everybody's safe, so either, you know, get the vaccine or you could just take a test and so we know you're good. Um, but they interpreted the language as like, no, 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 it wasn't specific enough. So it didn't say like, the Congress didn't pass a law saying for the COVID-19 pandemic, businesses must, must enforce a vaccinate or test policy. Since the wording wasn't that specific, they were like, well, it doesn't count. And they also said, I love this argument. COVID isn't just an occupational hazard. It's also a more general societal hazard. And, well, the, the federal government only has the right, and the executive branch and the agencies only have a right to regulate occupational hazards. So it's not the same category. So they're saying COVID isn't an occupational hazard because it's also more than just an occupational hazard. It's a general societal hazard. I mean, look at the – I mean, that's just such a Weasley argument. It's, they're literally arguing semantics to get to their desired end result. And that's the main point here is that what they're doing is judicial activism from the right. Because right-wingers love to attack the left as like, these are the judicial activists who just read in rights that you don't even have, like the right to an abortion. They interpret that from a right to privacy. And privacy and abortion are not the same thing. So they're reading too much into it and just making it up because this is their politics. That's exactly what the conservatives are doing in this instance. It's exactly what they're doing. Oh, you know, we know that there is the ability for the federal government and the executive agencies to regulate uh, for health and safety to make sure everybody's okay in a pandemic, but the wording wasn't specific enough, so now we're just going to slap that down. So their personal politics is overriding the legal aspect of it. They're not actually going by the legality of it and the constitutionality of it. And that's what they're going to try to do here. And I'm terrified. So this is uh, 
the case that they're getting involved in is West Virginia versus the EPA. West Virginia versus the, versus the Environmental Protection Agency. And they're pulling out all the stops. They got all these big money groups involved. And they're trying to make this argument that the Environmental Protection Agency cannot regulate greenhouse gas emissions, at least not with super specific language from Congress that clearly lays out what they can and can't do and how far they can go, so on and so forth. And they, they will use this trick on everything, on everything. The language will never be specific enough for them to say, yes, the EPA can do that. So they're just trying to make it so you can't even really have an environmental protection agency. And they're doing that for their own profit and for their own greed. This is why people lose faith in politics. There is a big money assault being waged to totally control our politics. And that's the most devastating thought of all, is that now you give these right-wing courts veto power over anything a federal government even does. And so then we're permanently in a situation where the democratic will of the people is never implemented, ever. It might lead to a crisis of legitimacy, and if it leads to a crisis of legitimacy, then reforms will have to be made. This has happened once in the past. And um, hopefully we get to that point again, because we can't keep going down this path, that's for sure. So CNN um, released a completely insufferable promotional propaganda ad video for themselves here. They're going to fillet themselves. And of course, they're doing this in the midst of a giant scandal involving them not doing their job well. So let's take a look and then I'll respond.
my daughter can't be what she can't see. They want other people to learn from them. You can get this done.
what? <laughs> I never felt gay until I became a, what, what does that have to do with anything? The video is not even that long and you've managed to squeeze that in there. Then she says, my daughter can't be what she can't see. So what are you saying? Like you actively want your daughter to be gay? You're trying to prod your daughter into being gay? Look, on this show, we are staunchly in favor of LGBTQ rights, 100%. Always been in favor of gay marriage, always been in favor of uh, the LGBTQ community being a protected class, no doubt about it. But what does that even mean? Well, why don't you just accept your daughter however she is, whether she's gay, straight, something else, whatever, it doesn't matter. How did they manage to fit some virtue signaling bullshit, some identity bullshit, in the middle of a thing that's supposed to be about how objective they are and how great they are at news? They have so lost the plot, man. They're so out of their minds. They have become the caricature of themselves that, you know, everybody thought they were. So here, let me read some of the things here, some of the comments from the commenters. Accountability and CNN don't go together. There are no journalists at CNN. Quote, we are CNN. You are liars. Really hope new owners straighten this group out. Once I respected CNN, now I am embarrassed. Corporate propaganda. I wish I could see the dislikes. Uh, ratings must be super low if you have to pat yourselves on the back like this, LOL. And I like this one the most. Fix your corporatist framing, add more investigative reporters, broaden your scope, get rid of the political and military insiders, hire some people who have been part of the working class, minimize the opinion and pointless debate, do better at weeding out contributors with conflicts of interest, stop chasing the shiny objects, limit the palace intrigue, and start doing the news, that matters. P.S. The donor class should be used in disgust by any journalist who is meant to be speaking truth to power. Do better. Here, here to that commenter. Look, CNN is bad. They're bad at their jobs. MSNBC is bad at their jobs. Fox News is bad at their jobs. Fox News is just Republican propaganda. That's what they do. CNN is just Democratic establishment propaganda. That's what they do. Uh, MSNBC, same thing. Democratic establishment propaganda. That's what they do. They all have a sensationalism bias. I, we can go into incredible detail about the ways in which they suck. I mean, all of these networks push for the illegal and offensive war in Iraq. Um, MSNBC and CNN were relentless with Russiagate, which turned out to be total garbage. The list goes on and on. You know, people talking about the beauty of our weapons. Brian Williams was talking about that. That was NBC. But you had the same build, Syria, Libya, same thing coming out of CNN, doing State Department propaganda. Wolf Blitzer talking to Rand Paul, asking him a question. I know you say we shouldn't arm Saudi Arabia, but what about the jobs? Yeah, good question, Wolf Blitzer. Let's arm the genocidal maniacs because of jobs. This is, this is who we're dealing with here. They suck at their job, and they're also massively propped up by an unfair algorithm on YouTube. And it drives me crazy. It drives, there was a time when the CNN used to get less than 1,000 views per video. Now they get a lot of views per video. Why? Because YouTube force-feeds that stuff to you, and they bury independent news and politics, which is what this channel is. And it's a goddamn shame. In a fair fight, we'd be destroying these people. Because it's not hard to destroy people who release a self-filating video like that. Okay, next. Larry Kudlow was part of the Trump administration. He is notoriously wrong about everything. This is a guy who said, there's no crash coming, right before the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, which was a colossal crash. Been wrong about every policy idea. Um, so he's going to talk to his guests here on Fox Business Network. They're talking about how Biden refused to meet with uh, Elon Musk or mention Elon Musk when Biden is talking about electric cars and the future and, and giving out contracts and whatnot. Look at what he ends up laughing at. 
now, I mean, maybe you're an electric vehicle guy, I don't know, but they're obsessed with electric vehicles to the exclusion of everything else, knowing full well that it's going to be a long time before that transition happens. In the meantime, we're going to have to rely on liquid fuels, all of which are available here in the United States. But now you've got gas 40% higher than it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. And frankly, what's driving inflation more than anything else is fuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in everything. It's mm-hmm. in the cost of stuff in the grocery store. And we have a, a, a solution. This was so avoidable. And so now what they're talking about is, you know, well, let's waive the gas tax, you know, 18 cents, 18.4 cents per gallon temporarily. Like, that's going to solve the problem. The problem is more supply to meet the demand. That's right. And the supply is right here. Um, by the way, I'm into electric cars as my friend Elon Musk builds them in a, in a non-union shop. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's the other thing. Yeah. And they don't invite him to the White House. Yeah, sure. They invite GM and Ford and Chrysler, but they will not invite Elon because he has some union, but mostly non-union, non-union shops. Yeah, yeah. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> Unions, <laughs> they give higher pay and better benefits and more vacation time. That's so stupid. <laughs> Treating workers well. <laughs> this guy's a cartoon villain, dog. He's a cartoon villain laughing at evil cartoon villain laugh at unions. I like electric cars as long as they're non-union. <laughs> Let's starve workers. Larry Kudlow. What a mess this guy is. So, by the way, he was right. That's the reason why, like, Elon Musk is trying desperately subtweeting Biden Acting like, you won't even say Tesla when you're talking about electric cars. Why don't you say Tesla? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe because there's 417 scandals around Elon Musk. He bitches about high taxes when he's a, a colossal billionaire. He uh, has, there, I guess there's some unions for him, but he's mostly non-union workers. There's all sorts of um, scandals around um, racism in his factories. There was an article that just came out about how they, like, tortured and killed monkeys trying to do his Neuralink brain chip shit. Yeah, I wonder why, you know, they don't want to associate with you. Not that the White House has high standards. They don't. And they're also, Biden himself is a mess on his own. That's obvious, but, yeah, if you, I'd rather have um, union shops there, union workers represented there. So, makes it seem like it's, you know, egregious. Why won't you talk to me and take me seriously? I don't know. Maybe because you shit post like you're a 14-year-old Redditor. Maybe that's why. Maybe because you, you, you do lay epic memes all day when you're a grown-ass man. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. Okay. There, one of the things that is said on the bottom of the, uh, of the screen there. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, where'd it go? Did I lose it? That's right, I'll just pull it up on this thing. Um, Biden policies reverse U.S. energy independence. Here's what people don't understand about um, U.S. energy. We export the overwhelming majority of it. We export most of our, our energy. So all the fracking and stuff that we do, we export all that stuff. So this idea of like, because people say this all the time, hey, look, 
We, don't, we shouldn't rely on Saudi Arabia. We shouldn't rely on, you know, these terrible foreign governments. Let's just create our own energy here, which is like, hey, fair enough. I'll take that deal. But we're one of the top producers of um, natural gas, and we export most of it. So it's not even like it's not even like we do most of it here. And by the way, Biden has approved a lot of new, you know, drilling permits, more. I mean, the left is going after him for that because he's nonstop approving drilling permits. But it's not like even if we like double our output of natural gas, it's still most of it would be outsourced. Shouldn't be the case, but that's what it would be like. And the idea that he's reversing U.S. energy independence, again, is not true. He's still going hard on the fossil fuel stuff. Again, that's a criticism of him from the left. People don't like that. And what these guys never understand, or they understand it, but they're playing dumb on purpose, is that, hey, jackass, even if you're a free market guy, you should be willing to, to go down the path of, wind and solar and all types of green and renewable energy and technology because there's inevitable patents in those fields. You know, the next revolution is going to be uh, in that stuff. And there's a lot of reason for profit reasons, for jobs reasons, you would want to exhaust that avenue. You'd want to get ahead of China and everybody else when it comes to those sorts of jobs and those sorts of technologies, but they want to be stuck in the previous era permanently. So even using their own uh, framework and beliefs, it still would make sense to want to go down the path of renewable technology, green technology, and energy for economic reasons, if, if nothing else. But there, are, of course, are other reasons like fighting climate change. I know these guys don't believe in climate change, but you would still want to do it. Anyway, there you have it. Cartoon villain Larry Kudlow. It, he, he's almost beyond parody, isn't he? Ted Cruz is trying to be Mr. Cool Guy. Ted Cruz, me. So he does, you know, a show with Daily Wire third stringer here, Michael Knowles, and um, they call it Verdict with Ted Cruz. He's going to do some Q&A thing here. Now notice, he's going to be asked a pretty straightforward question. It's a question about, like, legalizing marijuana, legalizing drugs. Like, hey, is this something you would support? Because understand something, even the right now is on board with that. The polling data on legalizing marijuana specifically is through the roof. I mean, and it's going up and up and up and up and up. Um, Ted's going to totally dodge that question and go back to a smear campaign that we just debunked for you on the last episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends. Let's take a look and then I'll respond. What is Ted Cruz's view regarding the legality of illicit drugs? Love the show. I've been a fan from episode one, and it ties into the news because uh, Joe Biden might not be able to uh, give us very much in this economy, uh, but he is promising to give out free crack pipes. So it's a topic at the top of people's minds. It's a great question, but let me stop, Michael. How is that not a headline for the Babylon Bee? <laughs> it literally is the case that the, that, that the Biden administration is giving out free crack pipes, because this will be good for America. If everyone's smoking crack, you know, talk about a great crime policy. As many yeah. people on crack as possible, these are your Democrats. He actually went further. He said that crack pipes were important for racial equity, which seems extremely offensive to me to say that. But So, so not only extremely offensive... If you were to come up with a conspiracy theory, this would usually be attributed to Republicans. If you were to say right. racist, and the, the media conspiracy theorists always claim them to be Republicans, the, the CIA, so this is another one, the, the CIA, CIA wants to give crack pipes to minorities to destroy minority communities. 
That, that sounds like a conspiracy theory, except Biden is saying that's what he wants to do. It's like, holy crap, you, you, you want to fight for minority communities? Get the kids off crack. Don't give them crack pipes. All right. That's a good rule of thumb. Get, get the kids off crack. Yes. Re- reasonable people can disagree on lots of questions here, uh, but I think we can all agree. Don't give the kids crack pipes. Amen. Not a great idea. Just say no. Just say no. Just say no. That's his, his drug policy. Now, let's break this down. When it comes to free crack pipes, Biden is against them. In fact, he's made clear that those aren't involved in the harm reduction kits. Um, he's bent over backwards to accommodate the Republicans on this and say, whoa, 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 I'm against that. I don't know what you guys are talking about. And by the way, I have no doubt that Joe Biden is sincerely against that. However, what exactly are they referring to with free crack pipes? There's, there are these centers that are now popping up called harm reduction centers in certain places. New York City is one place where they just rolled it out a couple months back. Now, a harm reduction center, the whole idea behind a harm reduction center is this. Um, first and foremost, let's clean up the streets. We don't want people doing um, illegal drugs in the streets. We don't want people strung out on heroin, sharing needles, giving each other diseases, dying as a result of it, overdosing. Uh, we don't want people you know, smoking the crack out in public and uh, creating a mess and sharing pipes and um, exchanging bodily fluids in the process, thereby, again, increasing diseases. So the whole idea of a harm reduction center is, what if we mitigate the harm that's being done, save people from overdoses by having medical professionals there, stop the spread of diseases by having clean drug paraphernalia? What if we open centers like that? What would the result be? Well, in New York City, they did exactly that. And in only two months, hundreds of lives have been saved. I forget the exact number. I think it was like 113 for the first month or two. It may have been a little higher than that. It may have been up to like 200 lives that were saved. It already far surpassed what the expectations was, what the expectations were, and what the prediction was as to just how effective this would be. So in other words, now, look, I understand. If you had asked me, I would have been against the idea of, like, uh, you know, the harm reduction centers giving out free crack pipes, giving out free needles and drug paraphernalia, because on face value, that sounds absurd. Because you look at it and you say, is the government incentivizing people to do these drugs? The fact of the matter is, when you have the harm reduction sites, nobody who doesn't already do heroin or crack is going to go in there on a random Wednesday afternoon after watching a movie to go get high on crack or heroin. What ends up happening is the people who already do it and are going to do it anyway get off the streets, they don't overdose and die, and uh, you stop the spread of disease. So it's nothing but wins. The only way in which it's not a win is the optics of it, because unfortunately people intuitively don't understand why it makes sense. When I come out and explain it like I'm doing right now, people go, oh, okay, that actually does sort of make sense. I see why they would do it. But instead of having that substantive conversation, what do they do? They smear it as just free crack pipes, put a, do a pressure campaign against the White House. Biden folds because he's a little bitch, and he also ideologically agrees with Ted Cruz on this, which leads to my final point. Notice he didn't answer the question about legalizing drugs. He didn't answer that at all. Why didn't he answer that? Why didn't you answer that, Ted? I think the reason you didn't answer that is because you actually have the unpopular position on that front, at least when it comes to marijuana. So Ted Cruz, he said, just say no. He's against legalizing marijuana. He's against it. Well, guess what? Joe Biden is also against it. Why aren't you giving credit to Joe Biden on that front? You went right to the bullshit free crack pipe smear, crack pipe smear which isn't even true, because, again, Biden's like, don't take it out of the kids, take it out of the kids. He shouldn't have said that. He should have been like, no, keep it in. He didn't say that. So he doesn't do the free crack pipe thing. He's against legalizing marijuana, which is your exact position, and you're not even giving him credit for it. Why aren't you giving him credit? This is what I'm talking about. This is what a partisan hack is. He's a Republican senator, and he's just a liar. Like, your ideology is you're against legalizing marijuana. That's clear. Biden 100% agrees with you. And you're not saying, you know what, on this one I agree with him. You're just a hack if you don't. Why aren't you being honest and upfront with people? It's like on the border. 
Republicans like to scream about, like, oh, Biden's open border or whatever. Joe Biden has kept in place the Remain in, in Mexico policy, which was there under Trump. The uh, Title 42 thing, which Trump put in place as well, which is like, hey, we have a pandemic, no due process, we're just going to kick you out. Biden has used that even more than Trump. He's used Title 42 more than Trump. He's more Trumpian than Trump on the border. And none of these guys say, you know what? Hey, credit where credit's due. He's doing the thing I want him to do. I agree with him on this. He can't do it. He can't bring himself to say it because he's a hack and he's a charlatan and he's a con man and he's a fraud and he's just playing a game and he just wants to be president and he thinks, I'm Mr. Cool Guy Ted Cruz doing my verdict podcast. Me! Don't you love me in my nasally voice and my epic ownage arguments? Me! God, he's the worst. He's the worst. Won't even give credit where credit is due and dodges the real question. The real question being, are you in favor of legalizing drugs? What do you want to do with these illicit drugs? Now, I get it. He's never going to say, I want to legalize all of them, legalize, tax, and regulate. He's not going to do that. But he can't even say about marijuana. Can't even say about marijuana. And won't even give Biden credit, even though Biden agrees with him completely. Goes right to the smear campaign. Oh, man. Oh, there you have it. Ted Cruz doing Ted Cruz stuff, and it's gross, as always. All right, final story of the day. Here we go. Got a real interesting story to show you here about religiosity and belief in God in America. So let me go ahead and throw up the first graphic here. New, the share of Americans who say they know God really exists and have no doubts about it has fallen below 50% for the first time in general social survey polling. So you can see there we're now at 49.7%. So basically 50% of the country says, I know God exists. I have no doubts about it. Now, look. That's still higher than I would have guessed if you told me what percentage says they know God exists. I would have guessed maybe 30%, 40% say that. So it's higher than what I thought. But it is also the case that it's going down. So, I mean, there was a time not too long ago. I mean, like 2005, you had 63 64% of the country saying that they think that they know God exists. You had about 60% in 2010 said they know God exists. So it's going down. It's going down. So the question is, why is it going down? I'll get to that in a second, but let me, before I do that, let me just throw up this other graphic, too, because this is more about religion than belief in God. But when it comes to Americans' religious preferences, Christian has now plummeted to 69% as of 2020 or 2021. This was the most recent one I could find here from uh, Gallup. By the way, 69. Nice. Um, and then you have non-Christian or other is 7%, and no religion has spiked to 21%. No religion was very, I mean, look at the year 2000, no religion was pretty low. It was like 10% or less than 10%. Now it's 21%. So basically, in 20 years, the no religious affiliation thing has doubled. So what is there to say about this? I mean, we can only speculate as to how and why we got to this point and whether or not it's a good or bad thing. Now, overall, I I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. The, the developed industrial countries that are less religious are in the Scandinavian region, and they believe more in social democracy. So it's almost like once you let go of the idea that, like, there's, you know, an afterlife where everything will be perfect, you, you feel inclined to make this world better. Like, let's be under no illusions. It's not like we're all going to die and then go to paradise, and so we can just suffer through the current, uh, our current existence. It's like, maybe we're not going anywhere. Maybe when you die, it's just lights out and you're asleep forever, effectively. So why not make this world better? 
And so there's a correlation. Now you'd have to prove that they're more that they're more linked than I'm leading on here, but it is possible. It's a theory, at least. It's a hypothesis that there's a direct link between um, lower levels of religiosity and belief in God, and uh, you know, a, a stronger belief in like left politics to make our current existence better. Um, so I think it's a good thing. I also think it's a good thing just because it's true. Like it's it's accurate to say none of the particular religions are correct. There's over 4,000 religions in existence. Is anybody really narcissistic enough and self-centered enough to think I just happened to be born into the right one? Like, my mommy and daddy got it right and everybody else has got it wrong. <laughs> no, none of the specific religions are, none of them are true. They're all mythologies. Now, if you acknowledge their mythologies, but you still sort of partake in one, that's fine. But to act like it's real, no, it's definitely not real. Um, so the religion, and then even the belief in God. Uh, the only reasonable positions, in my opinion, are atheism or agnosticism when it comes to belief in God. I, maybe you can make stretch of an argument for some sort of vague deism, like universality, energy type stuff, I guess. But really, any any belief in a theistic God is like, <clears throat> you lost me. Um, so I, I think the main reason why we're getting to where we are now is um, honestly just the increase in technology and this, the, the growth of knowledge. I mean, I have all the information in the world at your fingertips 24-7 on your phone or on an iPad or a, or a laptop. Like, when you have so much available information, it's hard to hold on to very primitive, mythical, mystical beliefs. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why. As the more humans evolve and the more technology evolves, the harder it is to hold on to uh, nonsensical beliefs. Now, it's also the case that sometimes all the information available at your fingertips doesn't mean you'll actually look at it. And people could have, like, bad information that they're getting. You could easily go down a conspiracy rabbit hole and get even dumber using technology. But I, I don't think most people do that. I think most people, um, you know, the the first thing happens. So most people do see a lot more information. It gets harder to hold on to um, those, those religious beliefs. Um, but there, it is also possible, too. Another possibility is that since people are struggling and since there's been a, you know, neoliberal assault on the well-being of people, not just in the U.S., but in other countries as well, that there is more of a sense of hopelessness and maybe there's a link between a more nihilistic, atheistic feeling and hopelessness. But I don't know. That seems a little too dark for me to, to believe. It's possible it works like that with some folks, but I don't know how, big, how broad of a trend that would be. But um, overall, I think it's a good thing. I think the more we can shake mysticism and, and nonsensical beliefs, the better off we are. Um, and I will say, uh, 50% is still a, a high number, 49.7% to say they're absolutely certain God exists. That means half of the people in the country are dead set certain on something that is, there's no reason to be certain on it. Just like none at all, zero. You know, I respect it if people say, yeah, I believe this, but that's eh, just my opinion. I don't know. Fair enough. But people who are like, no, I know this. I know God exists. I'm absolutely certain of it. And they won't budge on that. They actually believe that. It's like, you got to stop believing things with no good reason. You know, we all need to be open-minded and take in evidence and, and adjust course and grow. And um, So anyway, this number has dipped, but I hope it gets lower because, again, I think the trend is mostly positive um, because there's many downsides to having mystical religious beliefs 
that have broader societal implications, and we want to limit those. All right, guys, we are done, baby. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.